0: Yeah. 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 Welcome to this week's Into the Wilderness podcast. I am one of your hosts, Daryl Pace. And I am the other his brother byron and we're going to keep this very short and sweet this week because you're in for an epic three-hour podcast so uh if you're on a but don't be afraid don't be afraid if you're on a shorter commute you can spread it over a few uh
1: things if not uh save it for a long car journey or something like that Uh, we have a guest on who you've heard from before almost exactly a year ago Sam Thompson, it was one of our most popular podcasts from last year. So I have uh, every faith that it will find... Um, similar support this year. We talk about a whole heap of topics that we didn't even touch on last time. Oh uh, the range is is colossal. We start talking we talk about, about gear and sort of safety devices, and then we end up talking about uh, shooting and hunting organizations and everything in between. Literally everything. There'll
0: be things that you probably have an opinion on, things you might not agree with. There'll be there. This is a podcast that you can like really get your teeth into, and it'll get your mind thinking. Oh. And like the last time, we actually got a huge amount of emails afterwards um yeah feel free to sling us an email after this show about you know your your thoughts on it any opinions uh they're always welcome we do read every email and we do get back to people Um, sometimes it can take a bit of time but we do reply if you do email us and you've not got a reply after a few days then just yeah we will get to you it's honestly it's we get A huge amount of emails, and it just takes time, especially right now we're in the United States. We're recording from the States. Our intro, yeah. Yeah. In Seattle. We've been here for a few days. Yep. We have, and we're going to be bringing out, uh, in fact, you would have already heard one short little snippet before this show. Uh, and uh, we're going to be bringing out little snippets, like twenty-minute shows, throughout the
1: course of us being here, because we asked the people, and the people said yes, we want that. No fixed agenda. Don't know exactly when they're going to be released, but you'll—they'll be scattered out uh, around the period of time that and we're it's, here. It's just going to be me and Byron just talking about this place.
0: Yeah, what we've been doing, what we're going to be doing. We've got a competition quickly, and we're going to get a winner, and then we've got the new
1: competition, and then we're going to get you into the show. So, uh, last time we gave you the chance to win the latest edition of the Hornady Reloading Manual, and the winner for that, which was entered on Facebook, randomly selected, is Alex Jenkins. So, congratulations, Alex. Contact us, and we will get that sent up to you. Yep, podcast at UK dot com. If not, just head over to our website and uh, you'll get contact details there. New competition, which is to win a pair of Smith Optics safety glasses. We've given a couple of these away before, and I am still using. I I snaffled a pair about. Two and a half years ago, that was supposed to be for a podcast prize, and I'm still wearing them now. i actually got them with me here. Uh, they were the slightly more casual ones than the sort of hardcore safety glasses, but it's uh, a pair of safety shooting glasses that we're giving away for this podcast. And you can enter by. Uh, what do we say? It was a picture, picture
0: competition. competition. Yeah. So we just. the The theme is winter. So that's it. So whatever winter is to you, and the best picture will win. We'll have a little judging competition between us, and uh, it will. You can do it on Facebook. You can send it on Instagram. Even if you tag us, what I normally do is, I if you tag us on Instagram, I just screenshot it and save it to my phone. So um, you know, I keep all of the images in one place. And if you have no social media, then you can just email it to us, and we'll also add that to the the picture right, competition. You
1: know, yeah, exactly.
0: And that's it. No, You're, it's not it, because I just realized that ah. today we're launching the Pangolin. Oh yes, of course. There's so always more to say. There's always more to say. So as of this podcast today, there should be a website page ready to to launch, but it will be on the Brothers dot com and it will be on the home screen. There'll be a thing to click and then you can get all the information about what we are. Raising money for. Raising money yeah. for. Uh, we've already had contact from a few different people. Thank you very much. Offering uh, up prizes. I, I, in the last show, I kept calling it um, a, a, a raffle. raffle. Yeah. It is not a raffle. It's an auction. It's an auction. So we're going to be auctioning off these prizes, and it will be kind of like a silent auction in a way. Uh, we'll be getting the finer details of that in the, the coming week, but basically from... Uh, a few days after the podcast comes out, then the auctions will start going up on uh, on Facebook. But uh, do not stress, it will also be running through the website at the same time. But all so the, you'll be able to email us with the price. So all of the problem. details will be
1: on the website. So it, it's going to be as straightforward as possible. It's also going to run over a bit of a period of time. So we're not going to rush you to... No, to no, no. no. It's, not going be like, it's not going to be like
0: a, a countdown. Well, it will be a countdown because it'll be like... Nine o'clock on a Tuesday or something, but it will not be like you've got an hour to make all your bids. It'll be over a three, four day period.
2: Exactly,
0: and we've got a a great array of stuff. um, But you'll be able to see that the collection is getting is getting bigger. And if you have something to offer, then please let us please let us know what you could potentially offer. Where, yeah, we've got like uh, we had a few emails in
1: actually in the last week with some
0: great additions to the auction. Literally anything literally anything me and barn are giving up a few things it doesn't actually have to even be an item it could be a service yeah that's what i'm meaning it could yeah. be literally anything like a service like i don't know if you're a, a car mechanic in a, an area down south somewhere yeah. then give
1: free hours or a free service <laughs> free, or something free, i don't know <laughs> i don't know something like that something you anything we can use to raise money uh for what we're, we're for the camera traps and uh the, the other bits and pieces that we want to get for the pangolin research uh, but we'll we'll talk more about that probably in our little short podcast. Yeah, as well, so. we'll, we'll definitely
0: talk about that then. Um, I was just going to say, yeah, I'm, I've actually um, our friend Lisa, her, um, the wedding, her wedding is actually over one of the the weekend of one of the summer tests because uh, in the rugby calendar, the autumn tests are out because of the rugby World <laughs> Cup, and she her wedding day is smack bang on the middle of one of the the games. I think it's a pretty good one. So I'm going to have two tickets. I'm going to have to think hard whether or not I should auction these two tickets. Uh, I I've was got, wondering I, where you were going there. I was thinking I've got, got, se- I've got a- season <laughs> tickets and they are bloody good seats. So I don't know. Maybe I should. Maybe I should auction these tickets. You're going to have to think on it. I'm going to have to think on it. but we'll, Maybe you'll find out while we're th- here. They're worth a bit of money. They are worth a bit of money. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you'd have a lot of bidders. I, th- I think I would, yeah. It's, I mean, uh, the last, I think, 15 or 16 games have been completely sold out uh, with Scottish rugby. So, I mean, even for your games traditionally that was like Fiji, Georgia, um, Samoa, they were never sold out games. Half the stadium used to be empty. Now you just can't get tickets for them. So I have tickets. To so keep all your, the games, to so keep your ear out. If <laughs> yeah. Daryl decides that yeah, he's going to throw that into, I think I
1: might, I think I'm right. I might. So, well, I think we need to wrap up there and get into the podcast. Sam, welcome back to the Into the Wilderness podcast. It is almost a year to the day since you were on because is, you were the it? very first podcast of 2018. Yeah, you were. You're not the very first podcast of 2019, but close.
3: Yeah, we recorded it just before Christmas, didn't we? Yeah, last I think year? so. Yeah. And, and we, we, we were got, just after Christmas, we got
0: everybody quite, hated it. We got quite a big response <laughs> from
1: that one of last year. It was It was good. It was good to
0: yeah. see. Yeah, I jest.
3: People people get bored easily. So. No, the
1: amount of people that I, it was a very long podcast, but the amount of people that I actually took the time to message to say it was really interesting and very long, but I listened to it all.
3: Well, that was very nice of them. Thank, yeah. thank you, people. That so you must have had them. something interesting to say. Yeah, absolutely. Literally, none of, what was really funny was that none of my friends listened to it because none of them could be bothered to listen to me for two and a half hours because <laughs> they all have to listen to me for two and a half hours relatively frequently. Yeah, and they, they, were just all right, they probably you know. heard
2: that all
1: that stuff before. Probably,
3: yeah. I have very few high horses to get on, and I think I got mm. on most of them last year. How um,
1: has uh, this? I mean, the season is now. Coming to a close, kind of. We're Slowly a couple, but, couple yeah, of weeks away he's... from the end of the game season, and we're a few more weeks away from the end of the hind season. Yeah. How's it been for you? You had a, a good it, year? It's,
3: it's good. I always think my season... I, like, count my season as being July to March for stalking. Yeah. Um, because we do... I do some roebuck stalking in May and, like, early June, and I fart about a bit in June doing bits and bobs, but I start properly in July with Robux, uh, normally, and a few stags... <laughs> Uh, and then I always seem to start stags with clients. Always seem to get busy in August on the hill, which is actually like August and early September is some of my favourite hill stalking time. Like it's really hard, you know. You, you, Dearest, still in big groups, and they've not they've not started to break up. Um, Their big groups are high up, and it's it's hard stalking, and you're putting big miles in. And I really like that. So, so yeah. So uh, July to March is what I always think of because. If we're doing forestry stuff, then that lasts a bit longer than February uh, for Heinz. and of course the Rodos run until March. So, uh, yeah, well, they run until the end of March. Um, so that's like, so I'm kind of halfway through my season, but definitely the busy the busy time has finished. The client time really has finished now for me. I haven't got any more stalking clients booked in this season. So
1: it's funny how different people think of it uh, slightly different in terms of what is your season. Because funny enough. It- Very similar to what you just said. I wrote an article in this last issue of Modern Huntsman, and I was talking about the year. I was kind of painting the picture of a year in Scotland for those Mm. people who don't know it. And so, for for me, I kind of think of my season starting in um, about the rut time for red deer. That's where I kind of feel like I get the first sort of thrill after summer. Yeah. So stag stag rut is just it's so iconic in Scotland. So I feel like that's where that's where it starts, and then you're uh, sorry i'm talking absolute rubbish that's where my stalking season kind of feels like it starts but really for me it feels like it starts in august yeah august the 12th always feels like a great start yeah
3: and it's 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 weird because like the past so i've been self-employed for three years and for that past three years i think the first year i was loading on a grouse day on the 12th Mm -hmm. but uh this season just gone i didn't do any grouse because the grouse season was so poor up here Mm-hmm. Uh, so I didn't have a single day at, at grouse um, walked up or, or driven. You know there was there was no there was no work at, at grouse for me. And the year before I was just so busy stalking that I didn't get
1: out on the grouse.
3: Uh, I did, I didn't get out of grouse at all. So I haven't been on a grouse day. I'm just trying to think if I've been on one and I've forgotten about it. But I don't think I have. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I haven't been on a grouse day for like three years. Mm-hmm. So in my head there's always August the 12th. always it's it is always busy because we're always stalking. And it's my mum's birthday as well. <laughs> and I can't remember the last. It's so bad but it's just really unfortunate for her. It's just a terrible day to be born and have a son that's just (laughs) daughter. Terrible day. (laughs) It's just, I'm never going to turn up. No, you're going to be away. Yeah, so, so she like, I don't know, she got her birthday present, I think last, this year, she got her birthday present in November. Because that was when I like that time to see her in November, so I went to her then. So I always feel a bit sorry for her. But yeah, the twelfth, the twelfth definitely got that thing, and I think the glorious twelfth is known by random people that yeah. know nothing about shooting. But you say the glorious twelfth, positively, like, oh yeah, positively like, or negatively, it's not it? Yeah, there. The, yeah, the, and it's like, oh yeah, that's that. You know, that's that thing and shooting and stuff. So I think it's that's yeah, that's always a date. But invariably, I'm out stalking stags on the twelfth of mm. August somewhere because
1: everything comes so quick after there. You've got yeah. that. You have got a couple of mad weeks if if you yeah. if there are grouse to shoot. There's a couple of mad weeks, and then, like you say, you're Absolutely. getting into you're really getting into the stags. The strog, and then you're getting into yeah. the the rut, and then I mean, I don't do a lot during that period because I can't afford to shoot grouse oh. um, or or stags most of the time. So most of the hunting that I'm doing is yeah. w- once the females come in. Absolutely, you know, once the game and season's open. Like I was just telling you this morning, you know, the foreshore yeah. September, I'm yeah. out on the foreshore hind season November. I can't believe it's
0: almost
3: over
1: again. It's crazy, isn't
3: it? It's really weird. This is. Um, I like i always seem I always seem to work up until Christmas sounds really bad, doesn't it? but like really anticipating and enjoying it, and then getting to a point where like I always get to the the last two weeks of the stag season, like it gets the end of September, and I want stags to be done. I'm like I've had enough, and this year was the first year where that wasn't the case, um just because of how i where I was working this year um which was which epic, was epic. it was so cool um i just it I was so lucky to be there. Um, it was an estate in, in, in Gairlock, uh well, in Ross, maybe in Gairlock, near Gairlock, West Coast of Scotland, big place, um, incredibly remote, like literally um, the most remote grid square that the Ordnance Survey has is, I think, two kilometres from the lodge I was stalking out of. And to get to it, it was a six or seven mile boat ride after a 10 mile Pick up on a track ride from the nearest road so on a sunday afternoon i guess i'd arrive on the sunday afternoon and we'd shoot a target at the civilized end in inverted commas and then you'd load everything into a pickup you'd drive to a jetty you'd load everything to in into a couple of boats and we'd ship them to the lodge and then we were at this lodge in the middle of nowhere for for a week until the saturday um and there was, there was no electricity uh light in that lodge is, is candles and hurricane lanterns and the cooking's on an oil sounds yard, like heaven yeah and all the extractions with horses uh, and and boats a little bit but but pretty much all with ponies uh and i've i've never really had an enjoyable season we didn't shoot a lot of stags there wasn't a lot of stags to be shot um just with the winters that they've had i mean there was they were saying that on on the back of their deer count they had um 69 red deer calves over seventy something thousand acres. Oh wow! So yeah, so a really so hard year. For so a really hard year. The the beast from the east, in that late winter, just really hit them hard. It's an incredibly you're shooting small deer uh in really exposed places. There anyway, there's not a lot of shelter and there's not a lot of forage for them. You know that they, they are they're not the the giant survival so the least. fittest there. It re- yeah, it really is. And even then, the fit is kind of on that fit because they can't get that fit. um And it's really fascinating. I I I was really lucky. Um, that just there's, there's um there's there's a lot of history there and so I I managed to read a lot and learn a lot while I was there about about the area and stuff and that something they had which I think should be in all lodges and all stalking places and probably just everywhere generally in Scotland is they had a, an estate OS map with all the translations of the Gaelic names oh very interesting underneath them which and I I have like I I can't speak Gaelic at all but I have a I have like a smattering of place name knowledges from stalking in different places and learning what, you know, um different hills mean or, you know, um whatever it is that is yellow and all these different things. So I kind of know, but that was really good because it you were looking at place names. There was some amazing ones. There was a um and I'm not gonna try and pronounce the Gaelic because I'll invariably get it wrong and my mate from the Hebrides will shout at me. <laughs> um, but there was there was like uh, the place the, the hollow of the wolf's howl and stuff like that which and the Gaelic name is just a Gaelic word and you read it and it's a Gaelic word and you don't know what it means and suddenly it was all translated and you know there was the glade of the trees and all these different places and a lot of that stuff isn't on isn't there anymore no. the glade of the trees has no trees uh, there's no, wolves. And there's no wolves howling Um and yeah, that was that was such a cool thing because it allowed it gave me a real. It, it, I I don't know it was it was just weird, but it gave me this real understanding of the place that I think, is hard, especially with the sort of, and I know I explained it last time, but I should probably say again that I'm a contract stalker, so I go to an estate for a season and stalk there for a season and may never go back. So because I'm there, I have to learn the ground very quickly or try to, uh, and so it. It was really cool for me because I kind of had an investment in the place I don't normally get. I, mm. I got an, an understanding that I probably haven't had before on many places that I've stalked because of this like this really good map and really good local knowledge that was shared with me.
1: And generally, um, the name they're named for a reason. Yeah,
3: absolutely. Like um, and the re- there was a really ominous one. So there was a place there called uh, The Peak of the Deed and The Lock of the Deed. And I don't know what the deed was. Like, I, I, I was like I was really keen to find out, and I kept asking, and I went to the pub and I asked, and nobody knew because it's it's Skernelachlin or something, um in Gaelic. So everybody just knows it as that. And and I was like, this deed must have been really quite something. And I stalked somewhere else a few years ago when I was first self-employed. I stalked somewhere, and it was um, uh, and the name of the place was like um, it was named after a a redcoat sergeant that was killed there after the Jacobite really So wow. the, the, it was the Cory of I can and I should remember, and I don't. Um, but, it, it, you know, and that was like, that was one, that was a murder. And there's a place in Loch Lomond in the Trossachs somewhere, that's the Well of the Seven Heads. Have you heard of that place at all? <laughs> no, there's no, a service no, no. station there now. The Well of the Seven Heads is named because, again, you go back into that Jacobite, you know, 18th century kind of time frame when Scotland was pretty wild, um, that a guy caught someone rustling his cattle. Or that was his excuse, and he he killed them all and chopped all their heads off, and there were seven of them, and he washed the heads in the well there before taking them to wherever he was taken. So and that's and that's still called the Well of the Seven Heads. And so yeah, I think those bits of history are awesome. Yeah, and Scotland's really like. I'm sure it's the same in bits of England, but I've just spent a lot more time looking at maps up here. I think
1: you Um, might be disappointed by the deed. It could just be some guy who had the opportunity to name it, and it was. Happen, absolutely to shag on the top of a hill or something <laughs> yeah <laughs> potentially <laughs>
3: potentially it's it's all back to some sort of 13th century rudeness that a great affair happened there it could be um, what i always find really funny is um and I, it's just it's uh, campus na uh is the bay of the pledges and wherever i've worked especially on the west coast where there's lots of little bays and stuff invariably every os map seems to have a bay of the pledges so there was the most like in Gaelic times in scotland there must have been a shitload of promises going on. <laughs> People must have just been making agreements like left, right and centre well, and just was, naming places because of that. Because of all the clans, probably. Yeah, there was pro- probably yeah exactly. Of- and uh, the, one, the one on Arden American that springs to mind is apparently where Iona landed on the Scottish mainland for the first time, who built the monastery on Iona, and therefore Iona the island. Um, but I, I think there should also be like little asterisks next to places where the place where the deed was forgotten. <laughs> or, like the place you know the place where the agreement was broken would be oh, quite good because for most reference. of them probably were. surely, yeah, exactly, there can't be that many agreements without people like failing on them or whatever, but yeah no i, I love i love I'm a proper map geek, and I find place names just so I love looking at old maps. Yeah. We
1: bought a bunch of old o s maps that were when they printed them on canvas. Oh, wow. Uh, for the the office and the house at home, which I haven't framed yet. But we've got three or four of them, all of this is kind of local Charity area.
0: shops, best, best place to get yeah. old OS maps. Because even if they are falling apart a little bit, Doesn't matter, you can does. still frame them yeah. and make them look pretty cool.
3: Yeah, they're still interesting. Yeah, they're they? still interesting.
0: I bought um, three maps the other day. And it was of the time period just between when they were kind of changing from the canvas to... Uh, paper so it's still got a kind of very vintage look to it and um, they weren't particularly of any places that I well one was of Edinburgh which I quite like Uh, one was of Perth and then one was some other random place but they only
3: cost me 20p each so (laughs) and I think they're, they're a really cool present for people as well yeah, yeah it is like i like i um you can get the ordnance Survey website it's really good they will make you an os map based on anywhere yeah we drop so we, we we pick pick a pick, we've got, got, got two custom yeah ra- like round yeah. your house or i think it costs about
0: two it's, or three pounds more it's to six get.
3: it's 16 quid yeah but that so like
0: to buy their maps i think it's 14 just of the areas but to get the yeah. custom is just like yeah. three or four pounds yeah more. i think
3: I, I bought one that wasn't folded it was a wall map um centred on a place and it was like 16 quid. What threw me though was it was then a hundred and thirty good to get framed at the picture framers. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, uh, Suddenly not that cheap. <laughs> frames, fr- frames. are expensive. Um, but what I would say for for like especially for hill stalkers and, and people doing mountain stuff, something that I've got recently, and i like I say I'm a proper map geek, but um the British Mountaineering Council, the BMC, have come out with some maps. Uh, with a company that isn't the os so very similar to os maps but i, I think much better a uh, really good level of detail and a, a big like uh a geological layer as well so it oh, talks, right. and yeah it's really interesting it's a one-sided map and on the other side there's loads of like facts about that map and that the geology and and all this kind of stuff—they're really good. I think. Well, they're, they're the BMC maps. So if you Google BMC maps, I bought mine from the really good climbing shop in Moor. and they're are—you get more on them than an OS map. So that's a bigger or a smaller scale, however it works. Um, but I use that for the first time stalking this year, and they're like—they're—they're they're just paper, but it's waterproof. So you oh, can yeah. scrunch them up and stick them in a pocket, and they're—they're they're waterproof, which is really good.
0: I think we should probably mention that if if people are. Going onto hills for recreational purposes, be it stalking, walking, wherever, everyone should know how to use a map. Yeah. And a compass, compass, and particularly if it's an area that you don't know that is particularly dangerous, uh, then you should have a map with you and not a phone.
3: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, so I, in my, in my, in my love of maps, I have a map, uh, one of those OS placed maps. I have one of those for every estate I've stalked on with the boundaries drawn on, and then I draw on all my, like, I can get a horse here, or I can get an Arga Cat here, or I can get a quad bike here as well. So I have all my, like, paths, and my idea is that when I'm old, you I'll can, ha- I'll put them all on the just wall a room. somewhere. Yeah, and I can just have, like, you know, my downstairs loo, probably, will have all my OS maps on of everywhere I've been, which would be quite cool, but yeah, definitely on the hill. Like, I think it's so easy now, like, I was, my girlfriend got me a watch for Christmas. that I've got the, I've um, got the same one. The one with the mapping yeah. in it. And it's really good, but, I would want to rely on it, like in an emergency, having a paper map. I think is just and the OS app on your phone now is really good, so you can download grid squares, so you don't need signal, yeah. and you know that works as a GPS, and that's proper OS maps. Until else, your phone dies, until your phone dies, you know, or or whatever. But if you've got if you've got an OS map, you're never that far away. You can generally, even without a compass, I tend to think yeah, you it, can find where uh, you are. ID,
0: um, it, yeah, it's so easy. If you understand how a map works, it is quite easy to ID a a ridge, a, a or, ridge something. or something like yeah. that i guess where the compass sort of the land compass land. comes in if you've got Absolute low visibility training. fog yeah. comes in then you need to yeah. your map skill
3: <laughs> really. i had that i had that this season actually because of where i was um and and it's genuinely fascinating topography of very steep hills near the near it's the epic coast where you were the it, it was so it was so epic yeah i i was like i think everybody my instagram like got so many people suddenly i think i just became interesting to people because i was <laughs> in a good place um but yeah like i had two uh two occasions talking with people um where the fog really came down and what amazed me and it it sounds really maybe really arrogant or something but what amazed me was how how it brings panic on people and i'm just really lucky that i grew up you know i, I was sort of taught how to be on hills when i was very young um And, you know, if you get lost, always head downstream and eventually you'll find people and all that kind of stuff. Um, But the panic that sets into some people in a fog where they don't know where they're going and the the bad decisions people were trying to make. And as as the stalker in that situation, and, you know, you're responsible for everybody. So your word has to be kind of final. And I was lucky that I didn't make a mistake with anybody. Um, But I was so surprised at how quickly people became disorientated and how quick how quickly people lost faith which is maybe just my terrible leadership I don't know but like there was a there was a moment where there was a proper a proper sort of it was it felt a bit like the bounty like everybody was trying to revolt and yeah. they were all absolutely convinced we were going the wrong way and we were walking further into the hill and I was like no no we're walking down to that lock and there will be a pony path there and we'll get on the pony path don't worry about it and and we did and it was okay um, but yeah I th- I think something that stalking hunting people like you know i i always try and think that what happens if you know in that situation if you're if you're out as a guest or a client with a stalker and your stalker dies you know something horrific happens and your stalker dies or your stalker's um breaks his leg or yeah, exactly like you know having some knowledge and some equipment to help you will definitely be a good thing i think yeah um I, and I, th- that was really hammered home to me by a head stalker that I worked for that gave me an absolute bollocking once because I'd taken clients off the hill in the dark and it was like a lawyer from Germany and a guy from England and he gave me an absolute, he gave me a proper row about it and I was like, well, it's okay because, you know, I know what I'm doing. He's like, yeah, but what happens if something happens to you? Do you think the lawyer from Munich is going to be able to keep <laughs> you alive? And I was like, ooh, it's a very valid point. <laughs> I don't think he will. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think you're right, like, even if it's, you know, have an OS map in a rucksack or something like that, but also have, like, think about it a little bit at some point and get a bit of a plan in your head that you can do something if you're, like, left on your own. or
0: whatever. One good thing those watches are good for is, let's say you could contact someone, is their grid reference, being able to get your exact GPS yeah, that on those is, very is cool. actually very good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if Search and Rescue, they don't need to waste time, they know exactly where you are. And that's the one good thing about those. And
3: you'll find a lot of... I think the majority now of, of stalkers in the Highlands, I think we're all carrying, or we, most of us, are like the carrying mini a thing. spot, yeah, the e perbs or the PLBs or whatever you want to call it, yeah, which PLBs. is like a spot messenger. Yeah. I've gone to the Garmin one quite recently. I've bought a Garmin Reach. inReach, it's called, Sorry. which is the technology from a company called Delorne, who were Delorne inReach, they've been going for years. They made the big old yellow ones mm-hmm. that people used to have. Garmin have bought that and combined it with GPS technology. And I, for anybody that spends considerable time By themselves, even if they've got signal like that, tracks where you go if you wanted to. Yeah, and it's got a big SOS button that calls you know it, is it's that too mo- complicated is that to... a monthly subscription yeah. that so you, yeah. you buy it and mine i bought the mini one because it fits in my binocular harness yeah and i it is was small by the way me, me and Byron, have uh, we played with it when
0: we were at Ewa. Ewa. it is small it's tiny it's tiny so
3: i i i have a i have a binocular harness that i use and it fits in the side pocket of that and this is not a big bulky binocular harness it fits my eight by 42 and like it, it's not a it's not a you know, some huge monstrosity and that Garmin thing will just sit in the side pocket and I have it tethered to it with a bit of paracord in case I drop it. Cause I lose everything. And the Garmin in reach is like 300 quid for the one yeah. I've got. But the reason I was, t- I was going to buy the big fancy one with the big screen. Cause I always think if you're going to buy something like that, you buy the best one. And I was talked out of it. Um, by the chap in the uh, climbing shop in Aviemore where I buy quite a bit of kit because it's a really good shop. They're lovely people. Um, it's the one with the cafe on top. So everybody mm-hmm. just calls know it the one. mountain yeah, cafe, but yeah. I'm not really sure what the, the shop's called underneath it. Really good people, really knowledgeable about things like GPSs that I don't know a lot about. And they taught me out of the big top of the range one and into the mini one because you Bluetooth it to your phone. And you can type on it that way. You can type on your phone, um, which is a lot easier than using the, like, the OK... Drop, you know, press a button to go from A to B to C, okay. B to, you know, that's a pain. But you Bluetooth it to your phone, and then you can use all the mapping stuff that you get with the big 480 quid Garmin in Reach on the mini Garmin in Reach with your iPhone or other phone if you don't have an iPhone um so and i like that system is really i use it to text even if it's just to say that i'm going to be late for tea because I, i'm so often in places that I signal yeah um and you can text mobile phone you know anybody's mobile phone number or anybody's email you can send a text saying whatever you like so with your phone
0: like holding your personal phone you can text and it'll send the signal yeah, through even the when the yeah.
3: even when the phone has no signal at all yeah. through the in reach satellite um Voodoo, link, link yeah, yeah. Um, the f- you type the text on your phone, you press send, and the phone, com- the conversation, um, of the InReach will show up on your phone. So it's like in the Garmin app on your phone. Yes, yeah, so it's, so it's, it's almost like yeah, So it's yeah. just a normal and thing. It's, and it's then so uh, do you get a certain number of texts for
0: your subscription? Yes, yeah, so your
3: subscription. So I can't remember. There's loads of different levels of subscription. So you can pay like I think the cheapest ones maybe twelve or fourteen quid a month, and you send so many, and you can you can uh make custom preset messages. Yeah. So my custom preset it's messages late for dinner. <laughs> it are like I'm okay but I'm running late. I've shot something and I you know, for if I've got ghillies or people working with me and they've got an ATV or a horse, I've shot something and it's here, come and pick it up. Or uh change of I can't remember what my third one is. But it's like change of plan. So you can send like a certain number of presets, then a certain number of text messages. And the other thing that's really cool, if you're in a like, and it's, it was applicable where I was this stag season because that was really, really remote. Otherwise in Britain, probably not as good, but definitely otherwise in the world, you can get a, a weather report. Garmin will send you a weather report to it yeah, um, via satellite. So, and you get a set number of those per month as well.
0: And, and obviously, on top of that the s o s and that goes yeah, and, and that goes SOS, to the
3: emergency services it, does it? Well, it goes to a control some international control room yeah yeah, and then they look at where you are in the world and they send it to the most applicable local, so like we're here, probably mountain Rescue, mountain Rescue, the more and, likely, yeah. yeah the RAF, or whatever. but i could i think well i'm I'm fairly confident I could take my Garmin to Alaska or Kamchatka and press the SOS button there yeah. and it will send the... I, I, I do
0: remember them saying when yeah. we were looking at it before that it, you didn't have to... You yeah. just took it and then they would sort out where yeah, that's, you were.
3: Uh, but equally, if you get it wrong and you press SOS because you're pissed and fine, they charge you like £40,000. <laughs> 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 I, like, I was looking at the finds and I was like, oh, definitely don't want to get that wrong no. because they, it's, like, it's an immediate they scramble helicopters. And with the tracking option, the thing I really like is that I think... So if I've got it on tracking mode, uh that can be watched by someone else with a garmin or someone with the computer. So in an estate situation, your estate secretary or your estate manager or whoever they can see where you are in an office can see where everybody is. We have so to suddenly in Nepal, not, yeah, it was great. if you're suddenly not moving for like twenty minutes, someone's looking at a map going, why isn't he moving? Maybe because he's, he's shooting watching a deer. deer. <laughs> and then but then they can text you. Yeah. Uh and I all these things I think the problem with all of these things is people can rely on them really easily. Um when you start looking into emergency situations which i've done a bit of and sort of like mountain rescues and all these different things people talk about a golden hour so like you have and something bad happens and you've basically got an hour and if nothing happens in that hour you're going to die so the idea that like someone in an estate office tracking you will save your life is probably not very clever i think it's much better to have all these gizmos and things as a fail safe but when when we're working in, because uh, I have a, a a business partner friend chap that I do a lot of my work with, if we're working in places like that, or I'm working with giddies in remote places, I like invariably go to a buddy system, because you know how people work on the ground, which I think is key. Like it's not uncommon to be out after dark when you're stalking, because if you shoot something on very last light, it might take you a while to extract it. But I think gut feelings about how people you know well and how they work. I think that is so important. And if I'm sat there and go, mm, well, Brad's been out there a long time and I know that bit of ground and that bit of ground doesn't take that long. Then I can start, or I can text him or I can, you know, I can radio him or whatever. I think that is your cornerstone. You, you know, your starting point for all of this should be something more basic and human than something like a Garmin or a spot messenger because, even that, like, if you think about that golden hour, like you say, sitting, I can lie and sit and watch a stag for an hour before I make a decision to stalk it or shoot it or something like that. So just because something hasn't moved for an hour doesn't mean it's not an emergency. So if somebody sees me on a map not moving for an hour, after they've watched me for a month or something, they're going to go, well, he's lying looking at a stag. Or sleeping. Wait, or asleep. <laughs> which, <laughs> oh, you know me so well. <laughs> um, yeah, rather than, oh, he's probably lying dead. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I, yeah, I, I think like I think buddy systems and letting people know, you know, when you're in and when you're out and that kind of stuff is probably a lot better. It's very applicable to gamekeepers because we work really unsociable hours, yeah, uh, invariably by ourselves, and we use really dangerous stuff. But for the, for the sake of
0: fourteen quid a month. Yeah, three hundred. You could quid. save your life.
3: Yeah, exactly. Or yeah, you can save your life. the The best situation is you save your life. The worst situation is you don't have. And this is all of this triggered, from my understanding, from a forestry commission ranger about ten of ten years ago, maybe maybe not even that long ago. Who like nothing work related. He just had a massive heart attack, but he died on his beat at work, and it took them. I want to say three weeks, but it might be three days. It took them a really long time to find his body, because they were like, "Where do in a twenty-five thousand acre forest beat? Where do where we is look?" He? And there was no, and so that's the spot messenger was almost introduced in, as I see it as like a to find a body you because know, it at least it's not going yeah, exactly. So it pings, and they they even if they don't know where you are, because you can set how often it pings. It might be every thirty seconds, or it might be every half hour. You know that they're in that vicinity, and the chances are they're in that two kilometres yeah. square or whatever. Um, and, I, yeah, that's why a lot of this came about in health and safety-wise, I think, was because of that incident. And he died, and nobody could find him for, for yonks.
1: Do you know another thing which I think a lot of people don't think about enough is carrying very basic equipment with you to, to help you in an emergency, just like basic first aid. Definitely. Or, I mean, if you're stalking, maybe not quite basic first yeah. aid, but when I went to Nepal, I spoke to a friend, Roger Late, who does a lot of health and safety for um, Formula E and Formula One.
3: Formula Is, is Formula E like? Ele- electric. Electric All oh, right, it. mm. okay. um, It's, it's really, not like ABC. I don't know, no, 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 know it's anything it's, about car racing. It's, it's not like they're the they've, really they've, rubbish they've, ones. They've literally go gone, cars. it's electric, so <laughs> let's just call it Yeah, e. that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's,
1: not one, it's not something I watch, but he is. He, he basically does all the health and safety for it. So I spoke to him before. So look, I'm going, and so this is the first time I've done a trip where I've actually had this concern in my mind saying, if something goes wrong, I'm in the arse under nowhere, I might have to deal with it myself. What do you think, Roger? And he sent me like chest seals for, you know, if you've got a punctured lung, things like that. And I don't think a lot of people think about it. Well, I,
3: so I carry my first aid kit that I invariably carry when I'm stalking, and it looks, and people, so I've got it rigged up in in what I call my Batman belt, which is like a bum bag (laughs) set. It doesn't have a Batman. Very gay. No, it doesn't have a Batman set. The Batman shark propellant uh, on it. Yeah, no, sadly (laughs) not. Or a wee gun that fires string. Was that Spider Man? I'm never very good at those. Um, by having that, I carry uh, two fox chest seals, a tourniquet, some hemostatic granules, and and various other bits and bobs, and a survival blanket, um, and various other bits and bobs, in the theory that if I shoot myself in the leg, and this is the thing, like it's so funny that, uh, like nobody really thinks about this, but if you, if you look at what, so I'm going to go out stalking in a for, you know, on a contract culling job in a forest, like I did yesterday, um, in that process, I'm by myself. I am using an ATV, which is incredibly dangerous. Um, I'm using a very high-powered rifle, which isn't particularly clever. I've got a really sharp knife, and I'm quite frequently working in the dark on really rough terrain it is not a particularly safe... It's not. It's like a good
1: checklist of things that might Yeah, exactly.
3: Yeah. Stuff that, you know, not that long ago, uh, two mm. or three seasons ago, I rolled a quad bike and broke a load of ribs and punctured a lung and broke my shoulder. And I was really lucky that uh, the gamekeeper from two estates away happened to drive past and see me. I don't think I'd have died, but I was very unhappy. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, yeah, like, we, we deal with really dangerous stuff all the time. And, you know, if I can stick a tourniquet on a leg and give myself an hour and a half rather than an hour, then I should probably be doing it. But most um, people won't have that stuff. Them. No, see, not, and I, I, I didn't and, for and, a really and long time. I'm even guilty, I, yeah. got, and the, I get have some of it, but I sometimes yeah. don't take it. I've, I've been just as guilty of not bothering taking my Batman belt because it's summer and I don't want to carry extra kit and it's hot or I just can't be bothered and, I, you know, nobody's perfect, but I do think that we don't I think some I think some industries, recreations, whatever we call whatever we do. Some of them are really good, and I don't think stalking and shooting is particularly well, one of them.
0: If you, if you just look at, not even stalking, but the countryside, farming has, I think, one of the highest accident oh, rates shocking. out of any um, industry yeah. in the UK. They released the figures only two or three weeks ago. Um, incidentally, also has farming and a few other, like, that kind of industry also has yeah, the highest suicide, suicide rate as really well. Right. Yeah. Um, and if you think about other industries, if you look at the dive industry that I was in, you should have seen the first yeah. aid kit. Obviously, there is added risk with going under but we had defibrillators we had every tourniquet you could think of we had iv drips you know the the full full works and if you think well okay that's uh, that's that industry what's the difference between that and uh, a farming industry i know they're working alone but surely that you should have first aid
3: it's so you should have first aid and a lot of i think i don't know i think farming i've spent a lot of time in and around agriculture um and I just think that farmers, gamekeepers, stalkers, recreational shooters, there is like quite a blase attitude about health and safety. There is like, A, well, I've been doing this for 30 years and I've not cut my leg off with a chainsaw, even though I haven't got any chainsaw trousers off, so I'm all right. And there's, yeah, if, you know, if somebody, I, I, I know a lad a, a lad down in Herefordshire whose grandfather has probably cut more big hardwood trees down than anyone else. That I've ever come across. The boy is like a legend, and he wears a tattersall shirt, a moleskin waistcoat, and a set of uh, jeans. Yeah, and that's all he's wore, worn for however many years, and he has cut down some monstrous trees, and he does that on the basis that he's never had an accident, and it, you know, he won't do, and that's great, but it's not. It's not clever. No. Like, you know, you look at the advances we've had in, you know, tourniquets and all these different sorts of stuff, even just in my professional lifetime. all you know, stuff gets smaller, it gets easier to carry, and we become more aware of risks. You know, health and safety and stuff is absolutely massive. I do always giggle, though. I remember being told a story some years ago about a health and safety inspector going to a deer forest and coming across um, hill ponies and garras being used for extraction and just having a complete Shit, fit about this and the fact that like people were lifting the 16-ton on. stags onto. Yeah, which yeah. you can't do with a straight back and bent knees. <laughs> and the stalker well, said, Yeah, the, and, she, and she was trying to work out, like, how many people and all this. And she was asking about PP and things. And, he, and his answer was, like, No, no, it's fine because we've got guests and they help. <laughs> and her answer was, I really hope you make sure they've all got a manual handling certificate. <laughs> and I love that. Can you imagine going up to Lord Fontaldean and saying, Oh, excuse me, sir, just before you go to the hill, do you mind completing this online <laughs> manual, <laughs> manual handling course? So you can assist me lifting this tag. <laughs> um yeah like I and the, and there is that element of it like we just work in really bad places you know we work in the middle of nowhere and generally you know, unless a helicopter turns up, we are going to be pretty goosed if something bad happens. But, but, but that, I mean, risk mitigation should still be a large part it, of it, surely.
0: <laughs> Exposure—you—you you kind of—you said in your backpack, exposure is probably the one thing that will get most people if, yeah. if they're injured and they're out yeah, there. Yeah, it's not—it's
3: not the roll quad bike. Yeah, it's the sitting the ex- underneath, sitting it under it for hours
0: and hours. Yeah. And you said you had like well, one of the space blankets or safety blankets or a bivy bag. Yeah, it's—it's.
3: It's, I've got the life systems. The big uncomfortable orange one that doesn't yeah. pack down when he sort of hole in your too. head and yeah. you are sitting yeah. like but a sort of seal. That, that, yeah. would, that would save your life. Yeah. For that, exposure. Exactly. There's a re- and if anybody if anybody really I can't recommend enough for anybody that's keen about this estates or whoever, because um, obviously, you know, us that are working professionally and it always think of these things more and we have you have uh you have a duty of care to employees and that kind of stuff. There is a chap uh based out of Newton in the Highlands, um, called Outwardly Mobile First Aid. And he is just so good at understanding what we do and tailoring his courses to Th- that's the what you task want. in hand. And I can't recommend that enough. There's no point in a deer stalker or a gamekeeper or a recreational stalker that's really bothered about his safety going on a course for people that work on a building site go on a course that's applicable and his name's Dave and I can't remember his surname but outwardly mobile uh first aid I've done I can't recommend I've a done a lot of so first
0: good. aid courses course, and yeah. I have to say the best ones I've been on have been the ones that have been tailored to the job yeah. I've been on a few kind of generic ones yeah. but when especially in the diving when it was specific yeah. they were way better and yeah. you you're
3: uh, you you pay attention more <laughs> absolutely and like uh, I bet if the three of us sit here and add up the number of people we know that have been shot on a grouse moor or shot shooting woodcock with Italian clients, not that's very racist to Italian people, which I don't mean, but the immediate Sorry, we don't have too many Italians. <laughs> the just... immediate, the immediate situation that springs to, our, to my mind is a bloke I know with one eye because an Italian guy shot it out over setters. Um, I actually saw someone on um, just on the, the Facebook the other day,
0: and yeah. uh, it was a woman. She had been shot in the the face so close it was hit her eyebrow so close <laughs> well, uh, a,
3: a factor I know down in Cumbria a really really good bloke um, who he factors a grouse more and a few other bits of bobs he got shot uh, last last season he got shot the guy was in the butt next to him and he would shot a lot of driven grouse and grouse is particularly dangerous because you're shooting at a bird that's very quick and very exciting essentially at head height mm-hmm. but this guy shot through the Safety sticks which you put in a grouse ball, especially so people don't shoot through them. This guy got so them? excited. He's on the other side of the butt. So, a grouse, but for those of you that, that aren't familiar, is a sort of a circular or semi circular, sort of slightly sunk into the ground, generally, um, shooting hide. Yeah, that's yeah. a like, bit of a hide. Yeah, would you describe a it, yeah, yeah. 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 It, it keeps you camouflaged because grouse have excellent some of them rides, are more like, fancy than others. And stone absolutely, dyke, but yeah, there's certain places in Yorkshire that have sterling silver dog lead clips. Seriously, yeah, yeah. I've not seen that. Before. Yeah. Oh no, uh, you shouldn't have like said that. Now there is going to
0: be people out with drills <laughs> taking <out the laughs> absolutely. Dog lead yeah, which dodgy?
3: I mean, yeah, um, yeah where, my, where my mate works, um, they've got they've got silver dog lead loops, wow. um, and you can walk. You can go to like every butt on that place in a set of slippers. It's amazing. Wow, fantastic. Uh, yeah, it looks like it's it, it, it's like architecture. The the level of stonework is insane. Anyway, um, the the, the in question was in the butt next to another butt. Um, there is you put sort of safety sticks in an arc essentially on either side to protect the guns either side of you, yeah. and you shoot over the top of them you shoot in front of you between them and behind you between them because the, the idea Generally, is
1: that if you're shooting left or right, your barrel would hit the, stick, hit, the stick, hit the sticks yeah, or you'd be aware of it in your peripheral
3: okay. peripheral vision and you go over the top of it. This chap had an accident and because he was he wasn't close enough for the sticks to hit them ah. Uh, and he, cause he was on the other side of the, butt, the, you should always stand in the middle, but again, these things, you know, for various reasons, life doesn't always go to plan. Uh, and he shot through the sticks into the butt next to, to the him. next. And, yeah, and, and it was purely because they weren't that far from a hospital. I think that the, the guy didn't lose his eye and he was, you know, he, he he's, he wasn't pretty to start with, but he's definitely not pretty now. And fortunately, you know, that wasn't fatal, but there's been accidents. Historically, there's been quite a few people shot on the grouse moors. But, But, you know, before safety sticks came in, it was relatively common. When
1: were they introduced?
2: I think it's
3: always uh, been there. Since, since no, been well, the yeah, since like since we've been about. Since definitely, I'd but when by, you yeah. speak to the lads that are like in their fifties and sixties, they definitely remember. Yeah. because if if you look like at the old three. pictures, there's no sticks nah, in any of the old pictures. But equally, when shooting started out, if you shot one of your servants, it wasn't the end of the world. <laughs> like, <laughs> you could probably you could probably spare a beta or two when they all worked for you. <clears throat> I should in say your, in that feudal <laughs>
1: system. I should say that for the amount of shooting that goes on, the amount of accidents is actually oh, absolutely ti- so, yeah. so so tiny. But we all know about them in the UK, but.
3: You know, the grouse the, That's the why we know grouse industry is a tiny industry. Um so we all know about them because it is really it's not common, so, so it's, it's something so rare, to talk about yeah. and we love to gossip. Uh and it's a small industry. Yeah, you know, safety glasses. The, safety uh, that is the one thing. A lot I was of them insist say. on it now. Safety uh, glasses. And are if if, so if
0: anything, the be- especially beaters
3: yeah. that are maybe potentially coming over like the brow of a hill, beaters, they are the frankers. ones that should be wearing safety most of states insist on it. Now. Yeah. yeah. And there's there's a lot of stuff in place to stop that on driven grouse days on most you know equally i remember i went to a grouse moor. i was beating on a grouse moor to help a friend out and this is not that long ago this would be maybe five years ago and there was no sticks and there was no normally there's a horn to stop you shooting forward when the beating line get to a certain distance just yeah. a beyond a the horn horizon is blown yeah. yeah a horn is blown so that nobody shoots forward uh, and they all shoot behind where there's nobody in the way um but i I went on a grouse more, and it was like I think it was a hundred brace day, eighty brace day. I was beating there was no sticks, there was no horn That's just uh, and bad there was no practice. there was no sticks there's quite often sticks where the beaters will stop until the end of the drive there'll be like white posts out so that when you're beating, you don't accidentally walk over the yeah, and get exactly. shot, and there was like there was none of it and it was just one estate that was really bad practice and my uh my friend who Sort of got me there. Who was next door? They it, it was complained about, and it's changed since, which is great. But yeah, but, there but is, like you
1: say, the, the, you mentioned that because
3: it it's not the norm. It's it's not the norm. It's unusual now, and I think the other thing for me that that stresses is the emphasis is on the individual. Like, if you're shooting and you shoot somebody, I don't think it's a fair excuse to say nobody put anything in place. You no, put, of course you know, not. And there's that wonderful poem, isn't there, about true sportsman being and never. Oh, uh, the you young about sportsman's about creed. Um, That's what the poem was called, wasn't it? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Which everybody should read. Um, and is it something like, if a sportsman true, you'll be never point your gun. I should know. It's very, it's very good. It's like it's basic it's gun it's, etiquette. It's basically. gun etiquette, and it's so crucial. But yeah, there's no excuse for shooting people. And not that there's... <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm so glad. I'm really, glad we yeah. had you on the podcast. Yeah, um, I don't think people just, realize, just, <laughs> just raiding
3: some stuff out. I guess, but I guess, nobody's ever thought of that. Before. There's, no excuse, <laughs> th- there's no excuse for shooting people. We
0: have got a lot of American listeners. They can get away with shooting people in their homes a little bit more. Absolutely. Than yeah, that's a very
3: different. That's a very different school of thought. And Lincolnshire. That guy Lincolnshire shot people in his house, didn't he? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think um, I might add when they were breaking in. Yeah. So yeah. Not not just South in their time, house. Yeah. Not look, totally they outstayed, they outstayed their welcome at a dinner party, and he just got livid and shot them. Um, yeah, no, I think it's it's something that we don't it's something we don't talk about. I don't think we talk about gun safety enough because we've always assumed it's been there. I think I think it's a good it, point it's, because it's weird. Like it's pushed to beginners. Yes, my thoughts on this. So I was taught to shoot when I was really young, and I was very lucky. And I think people that are taught to shoot when they're very young are always better at it because it's drilled into you. When I was my if I'd done something wrong. In respect of quarry or gun safety or any part of it, when I was little, I know that my dad would have said, "Right, that that cabinet's closed." You, you know, if I'd cocked up, then there would have been a very clear punishment to me: of guns closed, you don't get to shoot for however long, potentially indefinitely. I imagine if I shot somebody, he'd have been very unhappy. Um, but I think the not the problem we've got potentially, and I think it, I think it's fair to say it's a problem. Um a little bit is that people now who are getting into the sport at an older age, which is great, mm-hmm. they go clay shooting when you're in a cage. so you're not actually if you think about clay shooting, you don't really have to think about gun safety. Gun's in a slip, gun comes out of a slip, you get in a clay cage. you physically you've got those physical barriers to stop you pointing a gun at somebody unless you are an especially stupid human being. and then those people go game shooting and get put on a peg. Because I doubt many of them go straight into driven grouse, unless they're incredibly well off. Um, they go onto a peg, and their spatial awareness. There is no physical barrier,
1: and there is a. Lo- it's hard for me to think about it now because it's been so long since I first got taken yeah. on on a shoot with a shotgun. But there is absolutely so, a lot so to much think to think about. There is a lot to so think so about, much. and we
3: don't because it's a, picking a gun up is as natural. As picking up a pencil for me. picking up a pencil and you know you've got that the, the black powder fouling piece the deactivator thing you've got sat in the color of your office when i picked that up earlier to have a nose at it i didn't have to think about not pointing it at either of you because it's lo- it, it it's like there's something in my head that is so it's so black and white that I, when i pick a gun up i don't have to think. Where shouldn't I point this? Because it was drowned into us when we were very young. It, it's a reflex. It, there, it's there, a there, reflex.
0: There, there, yeah. When I brought it out, there, there is a lot to think about. Just think yeah. about think about a rough walked up day. You're walking along. Oh. You've, you've got potentially three, four dogs in front of you. So you you, yeah. you know, and they could be running over brows of hills. So you've got them. You have got to think about. Beaters. And you got in potentially in, some beaters, and then you've got some in shooters in that Scotland
3: might, as well. We've got the right to access. Yeah. i yeah, And then you've I've got people walk in to a to a grouse day. like a driven grouse day walking down a path uh, between a line of butts um and i i it it, it's something i think about more because i get a lot of novices like I, i i you know through through work we occasionally get people that have never touched a gun before and we'll take them clay shooting and rifle shooting and then we'll take them shooting and they have a minder and some of the stories that we you know and it's it's fortunately they're quite amusing because there's someone stood right next to them who will grab the gun right sure. Absolutely, yeah. but you know I remember a few years ago a really good mate of mine was giving me a hand and we had a Mexican chap shooting with us who'd never picked up a gun before with quite poor English and we'd sort of tried to, to get terms into them about you know break the gun and what that meant and he got so excited and so confused that when he was told to break a gun because he got to a fence he threw it into his shoulder and started like p- pointing it around <laughs> like he was on patrol because his his english wasn't that good and in that situation you know we, we've got it covered that there's a blow next to him to go whoa that's not what we do um but yeah i i worry i worry a little bit that i occasionally see on shoot days because you know, I I help friends out who are keepers and go beating for them or go loading for them, and I I do see with the and, and I think it's great that we've got people coming into the sport. At, it is awesome at, that, that's at forty or that's fifty or brilliant. sixty, and yeah. we should not, we absolutely should not be saying if you weren't born with it, don't do <laughs> no, it. No, there no, should no, be absolutely. no barrier. of Yeah, age. There should, absolutely not. Or gender or there shouldn't be barriers at all. Um, but I think we as an industry just need to remember that we, we should talk about safety a bit more and we yeah. should And not be afraid also yeah.
1: to point it out to people because I think some people feel awkward pointing it out to someone when yeah, they've m- absolute, maybe made a cock-up and they're, they're 20 years older than you. Yeah. Uh, it never bothers me because uh, what would bother me is if, if I said something and someone got shot. Yeah. Or I, not saying something. Or, sorry, not saying That's something what scares and then me. someone, me. someone yeah. got shot.
3: Someone, someone saying, oh, I'm not going to say anything to him because he's you know Lord Fauntleroy's son. It shouldn't or matter. Or something like that. It doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter and i think that's something that we historically have been very good at and now because it's commercial i think this is one of i've got a few gripes about the shooting world becoming more commercialized and i think one of them is that like they're seen as it it's seen as you know you don't want to upset people because of because of paying f- money a fiscal exactly they're yeah. paying wages but at the same time we have to be so black and white and we have to be so so committed to it I think because we can't afford a fatality we can't afford accidents it's too, you know, it's just too serious. Uh, we
0: actually got tagged in a post I yes, saw that, yesterday yeah. Yeah. by um, Gilb Drake, and uh, the post was actually about um, safety. Is this on the social media? It's this on the Instagram. Sorry, on the gram. I think that's what the cool kids are saying. The yeah. IG. Uh, it was referred
3: to as the IG by someone from London for me the Ig. other <laughs> week. <so. laughs> the IG. Yeah. Uh,
0: and basically his post was say, talking about um, social media and gun safety. Yeah, uh, and I mean, I, I do agree. I, I think on social media, you do have to be conscious about pictures. On the other hand, on the flip side, we take pictures for clients, and particularly camera angles. I'm not, yeah, t- I'm not, can, I'm not I'm not talking about. I'm, I'm, lie, not, I'm not talking about trigger safety here. I mean, no. if you're not shooting, you're, even in a social media page, post, unless they are a way to take a shot, yeah. then your finger should be off the the trigger. It, 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 particularly camera angles, you can be in a position where you you would never be there if, yeah, if exactly. the gun wasn't That unloaded. really cool yeah. photo of yeah. looking down. Yeah, exactly. And and that's where you got to kind of def- define the be difference between. Filter. Th- that's filter. Uh, that's okay, that was a, you know, that's kind of a promotional or a yeah. setup shot, or that one was real yeah. because you just can't, you, you know. Yeah.
1: Pete, you need to be sensible. I saw just a couple of days ago Mark uh, Newton, who's the MD of Rigby, was getting some stick I online saw from that, yeah. somebody, and he was in a booth at the SCI, and he had um, a. It uh, was I think it was a double rifle I think. Oh. A, no,
0: it was a new shotgun, wasn't it? Or maybe a new shotgun
1: uh, over his shoulder in a like a cool pose, like he had it. Yeah, Just like, like this. Like I'm, I'm kind of I'm like uh, an like African a, PH. Yeah, that's how he was holding it, uh, which was very very clearly inside for <laughs> a picture. And someone was picking it up, so that, you know, in my day, you would be thrashed for holding a gun like that, or some stupid comment. Yeah, like, well, but
3: you always get these people. Yeah, I know. Like, uh, uh, the internet is. But just it was full ridiculous because it's very really clearly really, you yeah. can see
1: why he it's was taking It's the in, in a show setting,
0: yeah. like you know, okay. it was opposed. It was photo. A posed po- photo, and that's where you have to be sensible about. Well,
3: yeah. I had a bloke. I had a bloke comment on something a while ago on on the gram. Uh, who and I can't remember what the photo was. The photo, the rifle, it had. There was a rifle in the photo. And that was it. I, I shoot a Remington seven hundred most of the time, and I. The rifle was in the photo, and the safety catch was forward. It wasn't on, and the gun was cocked. The reason that was is because I invariably carry a rifle on an empty chamber, uh, it, depending on situation. Uh, but I. That is probably my my status quo is full magazine, empty chamber, safe rifle, pull the trigger as many times as you like. And I'd take the picture, and I was out stalking, I was doing whatever. I'd take the picture and not really thought about it. Uh, and he he put this great thing up about using safety catches and all this sort of stuff. And I just sort of went, well, yeah, but you weren't there. There wasn't a bullet in it. It's pointed at a hill. It's a very safe situation. and And that sort of that vigilante thing doesn't really help anybody because I think it just gets people's backs up about... I don't think you can lecture somebody on gun safety through a photo. It's something we have to do in person and it's something that on a driven day or a walked-up day, there has to be... It doesn't matter how experienced a gun is, there has to be a speech about it. There has to be a this is how it works. I really, You know, with stalking clients, I'm really conscious about it.
0: Particularly on... Film. Don't get me wrong. There'll be plenty of films out there of examples of really, really bad shooting or dangerous yeah. situations where you can clearly see. But there has been situations where we've been in, where there's been a perfectly safe shot taken because we were there at the time. But on film, it does not look yeah. like a safe shot. Because the camera skyline deer exactly. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and we've had it before. We we've had to take out a film because we know there was yeah. people that would go that was not a safe shot, uh, even though like you yeah. said they weren't there and it was.
3: Yeah. And but equally, that, but that's, remember, about, that's
1: about being conscious of public perception.
3: Yeah, it as well. is. Yeah. yeah. I remember seeing a film. I remember seeing a film a while ago about stalking in Scotland, and they shot like three stags on the skyline. and There was no way that wasn't on the skyline. I remember <laughs> seeing that, and it's a very well known. I'm not going to name names. It's a very well known film producer who made it and came and shot them, and they were quite a long way away, and they were all on the skyline. And I just remember thinking, "Who's that? Stupid!" Like even if it, like you say, even if it wasn't, even if they were perfectly safe shots, which I just couldn't imagine how they'd be. Why would you do it? Because immediately that's what it looks Someone like. Someone will definitely. pick it up. Yeah. And yeah, I've heard, you know, I've had. I, I, you know, with the stalking, the stalking's easier because if we're on the hill, invariably I'm carrying the rifle or Gilly's carrying the rifle anyway. Um, so people are given a rifle that's pointed at something with a safety catch on and then they shoot the thing and then we all go home. Um, but even then... I, I I, have a speech at the start of every week and it doesn't matter how many times that person's talk with me or whatever it is. I, I And a, most of it is not about gun safety. Um, but the bits that are about gun safety, you make sure are in there. And I think that's really important. I think I think we need to keep doing that.
1: Even when I'm with people that I stalk with all the time, like my friend Eden, who I do most of my shooting with if it's just me and one other person, I'll make a point of saying to him, uh, Eden, the... The, the rifle's empty here, I, especially if I'm going to close the bolt yeah. over something. Just so you know, rifle's empty. I'm going to now lean it against you know something or put it on the back seat of the the car. Pull, pull the magazine out, and it's just it's an open dialogue between everyone, and you should never feel embarrassed Absolutely. or even feel embarrassed to ask somebody. Like, I'll no. ask him, and I, I'm not I, I'm not picking on him. Say, oh, is the rifle empty? He will he won't take offence at that. He's like yeah 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 sure. I, I, I had a
3: to-. I had a really bad a mate of mine, and I were working with somebody else. We were. Uh, this was back in summertime and we, we'd we surrounded a little wood uh, that we knew there was a fox in and we were driving the fox out. So the three of us, four of us, had surrounded it, rifles, Benelli's, you know, the full works. And my mate Dan drove around and picked everybody up and he picked up a lad who... It is his job. He should know better. He picked up a lad. Lad jumped into the front seat of the pickup, put the rifle, as you tend to, in the passenger seat, like footwell, pointing up through the roof. Yeah. Uh, bolt was closed. Magazine was in. It was a ticker, so it had a five-shot magazine you could see was in. And Dan didn't say anything, and he just opened the bolt because it's his pickup, and he's got the right to do that. And around round flew out. I bet
1: the other guy was embarrassed, and it,
3: he was really embarrassed. It went really quiet. He picked me up after that, so I got into the pickup, and I was a bit like, "Ooh, this is frosty." <laughs> I wonder what's up And I didn't say anything, and then afterwards, said gentleman who made the mistake got out and left, and my mate Dan was like, "Yeah, it's not cool." It, and it,
1: sometimes it can happen. It does. So- it does sometimes happen. The point behind this whole conversation is. Yeah. Always be safe. Always, always double check. Safe. Never be yeah. afraid
3: to ask. And I, and I was going to say, and I, and I think that the real thing is: be safe in yourself, but always never be afraid to ask. Never yeah. be afraid. If to someone's going to jump in your vehicle, someone say, else's oh, rifle. Yeah. yeah, yeah what's the state of that rifle? Yeah. And the and the one that um, the one that I can't like my I use a semi-automatic shotgun more than any other type of shotgun. Um, if you're if you're cutting about with a semi-auto, put a cartridge as a flag in it. Like I, I see it. I see. It, I. I Virtually all the keepers I know do it. To be fair to to them, but I definitely see it with when we when you've got guests or you know people shooting ducks or whatever. It's such an easy way of telling everybody that gun's safe. So open the open the action, put a cartridge in at ninety degrees to it. If you don't know what I'm talking about, and close the action on it. If you've got like nice big red buffalo specials or something, all the better. <laughs> yeah. But that's a clear way of showing that that gun is safe, and that because otherwise that's all you know. You can't break a semi-auto, but that is I just think a, a cornerstone for me that if my Benelli's getting put in a truck or I'm carrying it in a group of people or whatever, if I'm not imminently about to shoot something or in inverted commas on a peg, um, then that's that's how I'm carrying a gun, and I think I think that's a good thing to be doing with semi-autos because I know for a long time people have been pretty grumpy about not being able to break them and stuff. Uh, but
1: yeah, it is it is something I, I've only recently started using a semi-auto because I've been doing all this foreshortening. are the future, mate. And <laughs> <laughs> really is. Uh, and it was something that I had to start thinking about, and and I did it from day one. Uh-huh. But I, I you know I picked that up from all the keepers. Like yeah. I I don't think I know a keeper that doesn't yeah. do that. And it's just a flag,
3: but no. Semi, I I can't. It's the only. I hardly shoot a shotgun, but when I do, it's invariably my Benelli. And my excuse but is that's like just
1: because you're a thug,
3: and I'm pretty terrible <laughs> at shotgun shooting. I'm not a very talented shotgun shooter at all. So I need eight shots, <laughs> and I don't really. I never shoot any game. I shoot foxes and various different types of vermin, and I do it all with my with my Benelli. And it's really weird that um, my mate Tim, who's now the uh, Tim. Uh, Tim Bonner, the country Liners, mm-hmm. massive Benelli fan. Yeah, I, I think there's like we're slowly, and I'm quite traditional in a lot of ways, but I love a semi-auto. They're so useful. I just love. I I like easy care guns. I think that's a lot of it. The less I've got to worry about, the better.
1: That's why I like mine for the foreshore, because I, I might give it a wipe down, <laughs> yeah. and then it goes back in the cupboard.
3: But I, so I'm like I'm I'm religious with cleaning rifles. Yeah, me too. Um, uh, like relig- like boring, anal painful person for cleaning rifles and it might like my specific order of cleaning rifles as well has to be done properly my benelli i occasionally <laughs> occasionally if i'm at somebody's occasionally house occasionally might look at and some oil got, and they've got a phosphor bronze brush yeah. i'll be like well, i'll not take it apart i'll just like clean it i'll i'll open it up empty it clean it from the muzzle end give it a few rams through and like chap the barrel on the floor to knock any sort of shit out and of it and it keeps working and it and that is is the the fact that i've got one and it works, and I haven't broken it, and it's just i I could be mr benelli advert well i'm using a I'm using a Meraki, which right. is a
1: much cheaper version of is that a like a new Bicle? no 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 it's okay. it's a bloody well made gun is it i have to say oh. i'll I'll show it to you because it's it's downstairs Ooh. from shooting this morning
3: but we do love a gun and
1: it's uh it's a really it's very well made and it's it's inertia driven, so yeah. you don't have all the gas ports to worry about. And I really like it.
3: It's amazing, isn't it? It's just, and this is probably, uh, this is a fair, t- I don't know. Were we supposed to talk about anything? Can we talk? Or, we can do tangents, can't we? Yeah, yeah. Um, I went to the Holland and Holland factory recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was really lucky that I, they sponsored an event I did this season, which was really exciting. So we got to play with their really expensive guns. And then they very, incu- they very kindly invited me down to the factory to have a factory tour. And, and the shooting cinema. And the, oh, the shooting cinema. I did that. I, I actually did that. I did that in the springtime when I had a meeting with them about the event they sponsored. Okay. That was cool. Um, I'll talk about that after the factory tour. The factory tour of Holland and Holland. I lo- I've always looked at Holland and Holland and gone, bah, that's really expensive because somebody hand makes it. But it's no better off, you know, if I had the money, I'd never buy one. I'd always buy, like, a parazzi or whatever. Having been around the factory, I think they're cheap. <laughs> when you actually look at what goes into these guns it, it it's cheap you, the the there is a there is a blo- all that engraving all that fantastic engraving which they do inside that like if you open the if you take the side lock off a of Holland and Holland which did um they've engraved the inside of it nobody sees that <laughs> they just do that because they love engraving stuff and that's their attention to detail but it is it is people with hammers and chisels and there is, yeah, they've got some fancy machines that do bits of it. But it is it is blokes and, and ladies with a shitload of knowledge. And I I have never i I can't remember the last time I was so impressed with something. These people, there was a guy there, really lovely bloke, who's been a stocker there. He's probably, he was maybe 50, maybe late 40s. He's been a stocker there since he was 16. Crazy. And when I was in there, he was making a right-handed stock for a three seven five Holland & Holland double rifle because he had made the left-handed stock for the guy that bought it, who had passed it on to his son, who was right-handed. And this bloke was making a stock for a rifle that he made a stock for in 1978 or whatever time. I love those kind of stories. And you just go around this. Uh, like, it, it was It was so... And I appreciate not everybody has the opportunity to go around it, but there's films about Holland & Holland's gun making. I mean just what a fantastic place and the knowledge and the amount of time these people put into them and the 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 practical beauty in these guns i just think is Unlike to the point now that if I win the lottery tomorrow, you're gonna buy what I'd always said I'd do, and I still will. Is I'll get Callum Ferguson at Precision Rifle Services. I'll get him on a retainer, and he'll build me like ridiculous (laughs) rifles, or like Like, once a month or something. Yeah, no, (laughs) he's gonna. I mean, he already dislikes me because I go with stupid questions. The difference will be I'll be able to pay him to do them (laughs) when I win the lottery, and he'll make me. You know, I'll get. 243 Catbirds and all these ridiculous calibers. I'll be ordering them off front and centre, but now I'll definitely have a pair of Holland Haunts because at 120 grand a gun, for the amount of work and the amount of love and care and knowledge that goes into them, I genuinely think they're cheap.
1: I think when you look at any product at the very, very top end, it's easy to say, well, that's a shitload of money. And I had a similar kind of gut feeling when I did years ago, seven or eight years ago, I had a tour around the Zeiss factory some of the most expensive scopes that you can put on a gun. You know, I write up, I mean Swarovski's, you know, equivalent. You name any of the top-end brands, they're all about the same in price. And I had always thought, you know, paying a bit for the name. Always thought good stuff, but probably paying a bit for the name. And then I went around the factory and I left after two days and we'd done a bit of hunting there. And I thought, you know what? It's actually bloody good value because the amount of work, the amount of machinery, the amount of skill the amount of people working in the factory and this is sixteen hundred pounds, which is a lot of money, but, but also you're getting a lot for sixteen hundred pounds.
3: So there was a so after I did the the lovely Holland to Holland factory tour, I went to their, their their shop in Britain Street and they had a four ten over and under side lock, like on the shelf, so you could walk in and buy it tomorrow. And I think it was about the hundred and twenty thousand pound mark. And I was chatting to them and I was saying to them, you know, Can I get a discount? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no Of like a hundred and eighteen thousand yeah. pounds. <laughs> um i was chatting to them and i was saying you know actually i i i actually think they're good value now like i've always just gone an oh, well they're expensive because they're holland holland and the queen's got one and he was saying yeah it was like we worked it out for a gun th- for that 410 and it worked out at like 45 quid per hour of people which labor, is getting your car fixed which exactly what i said i was like that's a mechanic to fix a hilux yeah. that is like and, and these are like the, you know, these people when they start their apprenticeship, they make their own tools. That's their first job. Yes, they make their chisels and their thingy watsits that they have, and they're judged very on very technical term thingy watsits <laughs> Yeah, I, I was I was busy being impressed. I, just, <laughs> I didn't zap a lot of knowledge up, but I'm definitely not an engineer. Um, but and and I was speaking to this sort of the, the the big cheese in the factory who who oversees it, who has been a barrel maker and he's done various bits and bobs, and he was saying that they look at. You know, Byron the Apprentice or or Darryl, the Apprentice goes in and they do their apprenticeship and they, the first thing they look at is the tools they make, and depending how you like how your tools turn out, they're earmarking you for if your your rosewood handle on your chisels really nice, they're like, like stockmaker, stockmaker, or if you know if if you if it's the perfect angles, they're like hmm, action It's
1: like being at Hogwarts. Yeah, <laughs> it,
3: it, 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 it 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 felt. You know, you're in this factory that they purpose-built with all this... Light. It was just... It was the coolest day. And I, I sort of... I went because it interested me. And I thought, well, that would be a nice thing to do. And it's very kind of them to invite me. So I'll go because you should never turn down an invitation. um, And I left just completely enamoured with the whole thing. I, just, I was just suddenly like, yeah... Sod Beretta and Perazzi and all these people <laughs> with their machines. Well, the mass-produced. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and this is and the amazing thing, I suppose, to be fair, is that guns are so cheap now compared to what they used to be. And you know, the fact you can buy a ticker rifle, which is as good as a ticker rifle is. And I think the 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 blued and synthetics, like was it eight hundred quid? I think and, brand new. And
1: guns, it's very hard to find a bad rifle or a I, bad I shotgun agree. these days. Yeah, and you yeah, don't have to spend a lot of money. You look yeah. at the rifle spectrum. I mean, yeah. Go take it, dial it down to rim fires and a CZ will do pretty much everything you need to do yeah. all day long, forever.
0: Yeah, exa- <laughs> exactly,
3: and it's 400 quid, brand new. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's that's amazing, but equally, it's 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 still amazing, and it's so good that there is still 60 blokes at Holland and & Holland. And it's a British company. And it's a British company. And they make Holland & Holland are the only ones left. Uh, this is something I learned and remembered. Uh, that still does everything. Everything goes into that factory, as a bit of metal. Yeah. Everybody so they else, make the screws. Yeah, for they example. make they, they they literally make the screws. They make the barrels. They do everything. And on, they're the only British gun maker still doing that all in one place. Wow. Um, but there is still that pinnacle of artistic... It is art, and, though. Yeah, it's it art. Is. It's oh, art. It's, yeah, completely. Even even making the screws. You oh, look yeah. At the screws, they're, they're, they're all engraved. They're all and they're engraved. engraved. They're not like... Oh here's a screw. <laughs> no, it, from a screw each fix. each screw is made for <laughs> from that a screw. Pa- Yeah exactly. Yeah. The, each each screw is made for that particular place, that particular hole.
1: Uh, and yeah. for that particular gun. For that particular gun.
3: Yeah. I just it is it is so cool I think that there's still people doing that. It's such a such a great thing.
1: It might seem amazing When we're always talking about and having discussions either on the podcast or just socially, like we were talking before we were coming on, about the challenges that face the the shooting and hunting industry, be it in this country or globally, that industry like that, which is so high-end and so niche, continues to be able to survive.
0: Uh, If anything, growing, because if you look at the likes of rugby, they've
3: taken on more people. Holland, Holland was taking on a big batch of apprentices when I turned yeah. up. There was a load of like seventeen-year-old kids wow. learning stuff. That's great. And yeah, I I think you're completely right. And I think we're I think we're really lucky in our industry that we have this great sense of history. And a lot of and people pride. see that as as being old-fashioned. But I look at like the you know you look at other outdoor industries. Look at look at climbing. I bet there's not many people. I know a lad who used to make ice axes in Glencoe. They made ice axes in Fort William. There was like a Glencoe ice axe company. He made ice axes in Fort William. Um, Is the climbing industry still like, well, I'll buy this handmade ice axe in Fort William? Probably not much. No, they're not. They're like, I want the best tech and that means I'm buying a Petzl ice axe from wherever the Petzl is. Definitely not Fort William. Um, And I think it's so good that in the, you know, the pinnacle of so much in our little world, and it is a very little world, but the pinnacle of so much of it is still honouring tradition and where we've come from and we're so in touch. And the history important. Our history. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and I think so much of that is, and I had a chat with a really good mate of mine who lives down in Oxfordshire, is a big, um, you know, a big shooting man, but a great... The, you know that you meet those people in life, don't you, that are just great enthusiasts about stuff. Yeah. And such good You feel enthused just by the you conversation. Do. And yeah, Justin yeah. is absolutely one of those people. But we were chatting to someone about how important our little world, our field sports, have been in shaping Britain. You know, <laughs> so, yeah. talk, talking about London, Soho mm-hmm. is the coursing cry, and Soho is called Soho is because when it was fields, that was where they coursed. I didn't know and that. Really? Soho is the co- Coursing Cry, absolutely. And actually, the original Soho farmhouse is still there. It's hidden behind a row of houses, he was telling me. I didn't know anything about London, so I was quite, it was quite normal to be I try and avoid So going to London, Soho yeah. is, you know, Soho was the Coursing equivalent of Tally Ho, essentially. Yeah,
1: yeah, of course. Yeah, and that's
3: yeah. why it's called Soho. So when there's a Soho in some other part of the world, yeah. it's a Coursing Cry. We forget that because we all think Coursing is cruel or whatever we think, but... Mm. like it, it, it is you know so much fed up the term fed up you know i'm fed up of this that's because if a falcon's fed up it won't do anything of course it would because yeah. you know it's fed yeah. up it's fat i didn't know that's where the phrase price. came from though Yeah, exactly they're my two useless phrase information well, I, I was full fortunate. of information today <laughs> none of it this. none God. of it ever going to make me any money or be useful but <laughs> some of it occasionally <laughs> interesting i was
1: fortunate enough to go and take some pictures with uh roy lupton uh just on Glenn back of the house you here probably saw on uh, the Instagram um, and he was flying his eagles
3: I probably I might I might have done but in my in my stag season I hardly saw any Instagram because ah, I had okay. no signal mm-hmm. so I missed a big chunk of the what, pretend world what a g-
1: <laughs> <laughs> what a great um, countryside pursuit falconry is yeah. I, I don't personally have the time for it but no. as in, I, I just don't have enough time in the day to do no. that as another hobby. <laughs> I yeah. don't have enough time to do the hobbies that I do, that I already lo- uh, enjoy. But watching Roy wo- work his birds, and yeah, he man. was working them with pointers, was fantastic. I thoroughly I'm, enjoyed taking I've pictures have
3: never, seen, I've, I've seen a peregrine working with pointers to kill grass. Peregrine? Yeah, that's cool. Uh, I did some work for a guy that... The fastest is, bird in the world. He, he yeah, rents, think, he rents, he rents, it rents so, yeah. grass. It is, yeah. Is it the fa- it's the fastest animal. Or if not, the fastest diving. No, it's, it's just just in general, the, the fastest. More than hundred miles. 120. I've got 127 in my head. It yeah. may be wrong. Daryl, get get going. Oh go. yeah, oh, I'm Google, keeping I the Google, Google to yeah, back us yeah. up. Yeah, I think I think a peregrine's the fastest animal in the world. But he rents a grouse mall, um, and he makes his money somewhere else doing something else, obviously. And obviously, the shooting you can't shoot stuff on a Sunday. You can't shoot Ooh,
0: game. We were actually way off with the uh, the speed that it can do. Oh wait. Yeah, yeah. 70. So, I mean, so the fastest land animal is the yeah. cheetah, but, I mean, the Peregrine Falcon would be definitely the fastest because it does 242 miles an hour. No. by fuck. Yeah.
1: Seriously? Yeah, seriously. I didn't think you could fall that quick. That's <laughs> Straight <shifting>. from
0: Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That is that is something, isn't it? But that must be when it's in a full dive, right. surely. One of
3: the, yeah, it must be. One of the coolest things I've ever seen um, was not with people, not falconry, um, but an eagle and a falcon hunting grouse together. Wild birds. Because a peregrine kills birds that fly. Um, and an eagle kills grouse a stationary, a golden eagle. So they, they duck into the head. It's not fast enough to catch them when they fly, but a peregrine is. And these two birds are working the eagle over the top of the falcon. And if they flushed, the peregrine killed one. And when they sat, the eagle killed them. So they're still paring yeah. So there, you and think there's like a bit of an understanding? A hundred percent. You, I, I know it. It sounds ridiculous, but you could not watch that and think that was that was a random coincidence. It was so. It it, it just, it, and I've spoken to a few. I know a few keepers that have seen the same thing and talk about it. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I, I'm just reading further into this Wikipedia. In terms of like relativity, yeah. what do you think the fastest? creature organism is on in the world and how fast does it go uh-huh, it's probably is it something really boring yeah i mean it's relatively is is it not like the claw is it not like the claw of a crab or something no no it's not it's it's a mite a mite. a right. californian mite John. travels at a speed of 322 body lengths per second which if you do it in oh, relative it, oh, yeah. to uh, relative terms to its size yeah. and everything would be 1300 miles an hour <laughs> Right. <laughs> so this thing is like breaking the sound barrier.
1: It probably clicks, doesn't it? <laughs> I don't know what it's
0: doing. There's probably people
3: racing themselves. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's
1: probably our whole... the
0: borrowers. Yeah, absolutely. Racing yeah. fleas, the Wombles So um, it's uh, it's peregrine falcon, then golden eagle, then white throat. What swift? Golden eagle for speed. Yeah, for, for a speed. Dive. Yeah, I find hard to believe. They
3: they they fairly crack on though don't they? Yeah. Rocked out the
0: seventh. A, you give them a thermal. <laughs> Yeah. And then and then ninth on the list is a black marlin the fish black oh. marlin yeah, oh, yeah. Huh. Uh, and then yeah it's a lot of a lot of birds and then 12th is cheetah and then back to fish sailbird wonder, where do people where's the what's people, the I, I, people I, I are the just, just used to yeah we must be pretty Well, number 20 on the no, list No you're saying bolts in there by himself somewhere <laughs> 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 at number 20 because that's where the list stops we're still at 50 mile an hour. Nah. so humans aren't do you know what is interesting
3: that? though is I I was told something quite recently completely random but um, a person will outrun a horse yes over distance That do is you know true. This? yeah it's yeah. just an endurance thing yeah we because, have like we're not quick but we haven't said I mean I don't but, so right, they'll, so over, they'll,
1: they'll <laughs> go faster than you but if the, yeah, if the but distance if, is long if, enough so, if so it'll you, crush
3: you in the first hundred meters yeah <laughs> but eventually when you know, Mo I don't Farah, know what when Mo Farah is still going yeah. the horse is knackered
0: yeah uh, that is true. And I we,
3: thought that was quite an interesting... We are yeah.
1: just built for long endurance.
3: There's a really cool... I was reading a really cool book um, about how things hunt. And there's a great term for predators that run things down that I can't remember. Oh, I thought That's you really were about to enlighten me. But it's something like Because there Corsa. is that tribe that runs It's something... Down, so. It's where the... You know Corsair, like the French Corsairs, the pirates with the really fast boats. It's yeah. where Corsair comes from. I can't remember what it is. And therefore, in my head, and it wasn't in the book, but in my head, it must be where coursing comes from.
1: Well that would make sense. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Just running things down, yeah, yeah. Running
3: things down so like wolves and stuff like that that like chase rather than ambush. Yeah. So that was that was a cool Some of
1: the thing. coolest footage of that that I've ever seen was wild dogs in Africa and watching them work. They're brutal, aren't they? W- w- but watching them work together yeah. like in the bush because that's how that's how they that's how they work. They that's just how I imagine get the, on the
0: velociraptors sand. probably hunted back yeah, exactly. in the Jurassic period.
1: Well, they they were pack
0: animals,
3: and but
1: Velociraptors are nowhere near as cool as when I was a kid because now we know that they had feathers, so they were actually just big turkeys. furry birds, big turkeys. <laughs> Did you know that,
3: Sam? I did not know
1: that. Even, even, but you know when you were a kid, like, yeah, Velociraptor was the coolest And you had all plastic thing, Yeah, didn't you? and but they be- were scaly. <laughs> Bear like in mind, me. all
0: of your knowledge of, Jurassic- of, of <laughs> it comes from the movies. <laughs> <So>.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it turned out, uh, this was a couple of years ago, that Velociraptors were actually feathery birds. Well, I don't know they weren't birds, but they had feathers. But still terrifying
3: scales. and would probably still eat you. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Not but, any less terrifying because it's feathery, just not quite as... No, I'm going to...
0: the thing is, right, like, just scale up a chicken. I mean, and if, chickens it, if, if are evil. It, if, if, evil. It, comes to, it comes to
3: this great question that I remember a mate of mine asking me, we were all very drunk in a pub once, and somebody said, has anybody got any questions? And he came up with my absolute favourite, which is, would you rather fight ten... <laughs> You've, have I asked you this yeah, before? You did, yeah. <laughs> 10, ten duck-sized horses or one horse-sized duck? You'd always pick the horses.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, But
1: if, you, but if, you, if, if you scale up a chicken right.
0: to, I don't know, like elephant size or something, it would eat us. It would try and eat us because they eat yeah, anything. Of course it would. Yeah. Yeah. Even like today's chickens. The, 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 there's some hens down there. They seem friendly, but I tell you what. You put a worm in
1: front y- of you. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a tenuous link here.
2: Okay.
0: On, I, I was so, going to have a tenuous link. Not a what? tenuous link. I was just going to say, you know, that the most liked picture on Instagram is now a picture of an egg. Really? Yes, as of yesterday. Well, whose egg does, was it? It was just a generic egg. Is this like, well, has it been there, there since point, the beginning of the Yeah, you know? because the one before was one of the Jennas. Uh, uh, no, the Kardashians. Kardashians. Sorry. Uh, oh, the confused. famous people. Oh, yeah, right, yeah, one of the, she, famous an, famous. she announced her baby and 18 million people liked oh. it and now the egg has overtaken her. I think that was to prove the point. Good. Well, I'm glad. <laughs> Good for the egg.
1: So, so my tenuous link uh, was going to have more discussion. Oh, right, okay. The picture <laughs> of the egg. Mine was more of a fact. <laughs> <laughs> Which was, it, my, going from... Dinosaurs, which is what yep. we're talking about, to rewilding. Now, I'm not <laughs> suggesting <laughs> that we're going to start rewilding. Strong, strong mumbia. <laughs> we're going to start rewilding dinosaurs into a snowy Scotland like it, wouldn't it is work. today. It wouldn't Vegetation work. Vegetation is different.
0: Yeah, habitat, people. Different type yeah, of animal. But
1: it, it is very much a conversation point. Uh, we've already seen a little bit of it, not very far from we, where we're sitting right now. Uh, beavers, not necessarily, oh, well, yeah. deliberately, but not necessarily legally, I think it's generally accepted, have been rewilded to uh, to, in some fashion to, to taste it. Uh and it, it's something w- in terms of a phrase, it is in the public's vocabulary now, whereas mm. it probably wasn't ten years Which
3: ago. Which we, and this is, I think, I th- I find rewilding fascinating because I see rewilding as being. Our latest point of viewing our relationship with nature as a people I think that's I think that's all it is which is continually it shifting is, over yeah time. absolutely and it, it you know it varies massively there's a really interesting um there's a lot of really interesting stuff about rewilding, and I find it really fascinating um i've been very fortunate to speak to some really interesting people uh I know a guy who's worked in Yellowstone a lot around there, so I've had some really interesting conversations with him. Someone you should so absolutely definitely have on the podcast to talk about this is a very good friend of mine called Drew Love Jones. Mm-hmm. Drew for the past. I
1: chatted to him at the game. Yeah, I
3: introduced to, yeah, Drew for the past four years, five years maybe, has run a reintrodu- a Beaver reintroduction project which was legal, which was sanctioned by the Welsh government uh, down in South Wales. Uh, he, he's run that and they've been fenced in, they've been monitoring them. Uh, they've been looking at the effects of, of that they have on that ecosystem. And, and Drew's fascinating. Drew knows a lot about What's his Beavis. blog
1: called so people can check him out? Can you oh, remember off the top of your head? shit.
3: I'll so, look it up. Yes, well, the Beaver Project is the Bevis Wildlife Trust. Okay. That's what... And Drew is the managing somebody or other of that. Um, and he has a good blog. Uh, he's a good writer. Uh, he's a very nice bloke. And he, he's... I... I I have a lot of time to talk to Drew because Drew comes from a background. He's been a stalker. He's been a shepherd. He's been a farm manager. Um, uh, you know, he 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 is in a very much overt commas because I hate this, but he is one of us. He is not a uh, a sort of a, a yogurt knitting. Um, Can you knit yogurt? <laughs> one of those phrases, isn't it? But, um, he, you know, he 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 comes from a background of land management. Mm-hmm. And he is viewing beavers as a land management tool. So he's he, not he,
1: involved he, in it for the sake of it. He, no, he isn't. doesn't
3: think it's cool. He, he. I mean, don't get wrong. He does think it's cool. He's very pro beavers now, mm-hmm. in the right situation and with the right management techniques. Blah blah blah. You know, beavers with sense. I think is the point. Um, but you should definitely have Drew talk on about beavers because it is really interesting and it's one of those things that I don't know a lot about, but I find really interesting.
1: Um so where do you think we're going to go with oh, uh, I mean oof. where where's the do you think there's a limit are we w- wolves are the the species well, I remember reading
3: I, I, when feral George Rombio's book came out which I think everybody should read because it is interesting um when that came out I read it um and I remember looking at his big table of stuff that isn't here anymore yeah and I read this probably closer to 10 years ago than anything else um when it very first came out so i might be wrong but he had like a he had this big chart of stuff that isn't here anymore and the likelihood of getting it back which i thought was interesting um and he was you know he went into the sea, so at that time tigers. beavers would have been one of them Beaver yeah beaver was definitely one ago, of them yeah. um and the lynx and wolves and all of these different bears. things saying yeah bears he, he talked about bears he talked about um, the elephants that we had at one point uh, post-glacial elephants that were around here, and we're not going to yeah. have elephants. But yeah, but he he yeah. had this this chart, which is the thing to look at for it. Is is that? And I don't particularly like the way George Monbiot went about his whole campaign. Um, I what I respect him for, in a roundabout sort of way, is the fact that George Monbiot, with his book and his campaigning and his his intelligence about these things, managed to get. Conservation and land management and wildlife management discussed by more people on more forums of greater importance than anything else I've seen in my lifetime. And get people emotional. George Monbiot, yeah, George Monbiot was talking about these things on the Breakfast Show and the news. And, you know, it it became an an issue, and there is a big part of me that thinks anyone that gets nature into the minds of people that are obsessed with. Uh, john kardashian's baby (laughs) you're close anything anything (laughs) who knows it could be a john (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyone that can get any sort of nature and to get those people to think even if it is you know in a short term if we can get those people to think if we can get this massive pool of people that don't give a shit or know anything if we can get half of them to think about it for a morning we can get a quarter of them to think about it for a week
1: it starts to make a difference. Christ,
3: I mean, two thousand of them might buy a book and read about it, you know, mm-hmm. and at least and, then and, and equally, the knowledge and fifty of expand. them might, in some roundabout way, end up becoming involved in shooting or or whatever, or you know, farming. You know, I think our biggest problem and the the stem of so many of our problems is that our in this country and wider in the world, we are so disconnected from nature in the most part, and we are so people don't. It's and the problem this is why it shocks worse. people that people. You know, people are shocked that we do things like manage deer populations or that we have to kill foxes or that, you know, have, we've got to kill beavers or whatever it is. Or white hares. Yeah, people, people, people's lack of understanding comes from a point of... Uh, ignorance. Lack of, yeah, yeah, sadly so. And I think anything that can get them to read something is good. Anything that can get them to think about it is good. So I think Mombio did a lot of good in that way. But what he... But he did a lot of damage too. Um, and he, 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 what I think he did is, and, and what I really dislike is the fact that he, his idea of rewilding is now the generally accepted idea of rewilding. So it turns it off for a lot of people. A lot of people are anti rewilding because they see it as being an extreme. Rewilding is a concept; it's an idea. It's a it's with a, a spectrum it's a of yeah, development. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. An element of rewilding is. Um, Bringing grey partridges back, yes, and and that's you by, know.
1: by shifting agricultural yeah. methods. You know,
3: and, and I think I, I think if it was if it was branded correctly, rewilding could have been a really big hit with the field sports, agricultural, rural sector. And I don't think it was.
1: But is that on us to try and understand it better and find yeah, the common? The con- I, I mean, I think there 100%. is a lot of work going on to find the common ground of what that is. Yeah, and
3: there's a lot of people. There's a lot of people doing some really good stuff. You know, already. People, yeah. yeah, there's people like Drew. You know, looking at the damage it does to dairy farming systems in South Wales, and that's practical. He's 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 working stuff out on a on. George Mombia came up with some ideas and says some really horrible things about what we've got at the moment and said it should all be better. But I'm not going to tell you how to do it because I don't know anything about it. What we need is scientists and experts and people that know what they're talking about to look at a practical... I I think you know that's workable with having people in the landscape. Absolutely. I think so. It's got to be because we're too small a country. Yeah, But, I mean, I I think... And I think, you know, do I think we'll ever have wolves in Scotland? No, I don't. We have too many sheep and too many people. Um, Well, you
0: just look at Norway right now. I mean, they've... There've been the biggest protests as in hunters yeah. out and eight nine thousand of them were out in uh, the the capital protesting because the wolves are all munching uh, yeah. livestock, dogs, and other things, and there's nothing they can do about it because the the, the yeah, control the is too. It's tight.
3: it's so it's so difficult and it's so I I don't know. My personal opinion on rewilding is fairly mixed. There is some. I've been very fortunate, as I said when we started this, to have spoken to some really knowledgeable people and some very involved people. My personal opinion is that we've got people in, in Scotland and in Britain that have the facility, the financial capability, and have the knowledge slash can hire in the knowledge to give it a go. And my answer is... On it. a
1: scaled version.
3: On a scaled version, because I think that's all we're ever going to have. And my answer is give them a shot. You know, all the, you know, moaning about wolves eating sheep and stuff. Fuck it. Give them 50,000 acres, stick some wolves in it, and if it doesn't work, shoot all the wolves and put them in jail. What damage are they going to do? If they own that place and that's their land and that's what they'd like to do, then let them have a crack at it. And if it works, great. And if it doesn't work, we've actually proved that it doesn't work. Rather than people throwing about statistics that they don't really know about and trying to find things to back up their argument that they're scared of wolves because we've got. A, uh, you know, we've our influence. We are so removed from the wolf, right? When they reintroduced wolves to Yellowstone, they hadn't been gone that long. Um, and the the argument, the, the latest thing that I've heard, and like I say, I'm not an expert, but the latest thing I've heard is that even if they hadn't done it, they would have turned up there anyway. I think they that were would coming, be true. They were coming down from the, you know, there's some great books that you should read, um, by a chap called Carter Neimer which is N I E. Y M E R. Carter Nimer. Uh, he's written two books. The first one is Wolfer and the second one is Wolf Land. And you should, I think, you should read them if you're interested in nature generally, but definitely in rewilding. Um, Carter Nimer was a, a wildlife services trapper who ended up working on and doing a lot of the practical elements of, of wolf relocation but he came to it all as, as essentially their version of a of a of a gamekeeper he was a predator controller uh he killed coyotes for the government and uh, you know th- that kind of pest and, and things uh in idaho wyoming montana um and i've been fortunate enough to have a conversation with him which was very enlightening for me but his books are excellent and that gives you a very interesting perspective that we never hear of in this country um because we have i think such a it's like I, I, I think I, I don't really know why we're talking about links, uh, wolves because I think probably a better thing to talk about is links mm. because I think Wol- wolves are at the very extreme end. Well, wolves um, wolves are that extreme end, and people get fired up about wolves, which I completely understand because really I think that's
1: it. one of the problems with the rewilding debate is yeah. that that's where the conversation that's goes. With really, at. what I'd prefer to talk about is let's talk about
3: habitat improvement. Yeah, but the problem with habitat It's not sexy. Is, yeah, exactly. It's not fun. You need that, the habitat It's the same reason that if we really wanted to rewild stuff, we'd start with Atlantic salmon, uh and black grouse for me. Yeah. That would be three well, species yeah, that we could yeah, really do some good about. They're still here. They're still here. Yeah. They're and the capercaillie need help. <laughs> yeah, they really do. Um, it's my personal opinion that the RSPB are waiting for them to die out, uh, and aren't doing a lot about it. And this sounds... And I don't want to be one of those people... Who bashes the RSPB because I do think they do a lot of good and they do a lot of good work in places. But equally, the Capercaillie is on the brink of no longer existing in Scotland. And in my opinion, if anybody should do something about it, it would be them. And with all their might that we hear about, and all their great um, fundraising and and you know financial status and everything else I think they should be campaigning damn hard and they should be lobbying damn hard for the Capicali and they're not doing
0: it The Capicali's got I guess one habitat I think is one of the large issues for them the loss of habitat they just don't have it because it's quite a unique area but the excuse of not having them here it's not really one because on the continent there's plenty and there was plenty here until quite recently. Yeah. It's I um, mean it's a
1: very recent conversation. It's a, it's and they were fr- they were reintroduced from Scandinavia. Sweden, they were well, yeah.
3: no, and Italy. And our, Italy. our our Capuchelli history is pretty fascinating. Um there is a big school of thought now and again not really an expert just know a bit but there's a big school of thought now that they never really went extinct in Scotland because there was just very we th- few we just them. couldn't find any. Yeah. Um I have I've been lucky that I've done quite a bit of work with in Capacceli places um i personally i think the three big problems are habitat predators and disturbance pine martens are massive massive predators to capercaillie. there is a scientific study that the rspb co-authored i think
1: you're talking about the one from about 15 years ago uh predation on nests uh could well be it's like 19 out of 21 nests predated on by pine martens. i'm not
3: talking about that but yeah um and then there's a, there's a study that's been done as well that says that um, increased fox numbers are better for capercaillie because foxes will kill the pine martins. I read that. Pine martins won't kill capercaillie. Um, if we really want to reintroduce capercaillie, it's pretty simple: kill the things that eat capercaillie and promote the things that capercaillie eat and let them get on with it. We can't do that because we have very. I I, I listened to a really interesting thing actually uh, quite recently about um, on the Stephen Eller podcast, which we talked about earlier, about uh, the grey the Mexican grey wolf podcast about the mexican gray wolf from like two or three years ago that i listened to the other day um and they talk about delisting of a species Uh, i think this is uh, they have this
1: debate all the time
3: they have this debate all the time and we don't we don't get to do that so essentially my very abridged version of, of it is that in america wolves get endangered so they get listed as endangered species the state and all its various faculties, then have a responsibility to try and get it off the endangered list. They get it off the endangered list, they delist it, and they go back into being a game animal or whatever category they're put in. And people can hunt them and all this kind of stuff. This is why there was a big deal in Idaho in the late '90s, early 2000s about wolves being delisted and getting shot. It hasn't. They've had the same the conversation about bears recently. They, exactly. They keep doing it, and this is this. You know, there's a huge debate about that, which I don't really want to get into. What I what I want to cherry pick from that debate is the fact that in America, you can delist a species when it recovers from. From it's from, because
1: they've got a system in place. They say, right, we need to achieve this yeah. so that we have a stable, sustainable population. Yeah,
3: and and we kind of have that, but it doesn't seem to work very well. Like you speak to my old man, and he will tell you that there was a period of time in his life where you where badgers were very rare,
2: hmm.
3: um, and it was rare to see badgers. It was rare to see activity of badgers, so. They protected badgers, and badgers are now back at a very high level to the point where uh, I read a thing that like 300,000 of them have been shot in the culls in England.
0: Well, so. ne- well I was going to say now, at the point now where they're culling them yeah. to great
1: expense. Well, they've, been, they've got caveats. They haven't been yeah.
3: No, no, but yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, But again, this is what I mean. Is So the badger is, to me, a success story of protection because it needed protection, apparently. I wasn't there. I don't know. But apparently it needed protection. It has recovered. And now it's at a stage where, in my opinion, we need to consider its protection. There is science and arguments to say that buzzards are in that same situation. Um, There's a really good project, which I probably mentioned last time I was here, that I did some work on called Wildlife Estates Scotland, which is a biodiversity accreditation for estates in Scotland. And the two species that um, we saw increasing through the forms we got back about wildlife numbers, the two species that were across the board increasing were badgers and buzzards.
1: I bet I bet ravens will be somewhere in the. I think, the, I the think top, they were stable and increasing, depending on where you is, were. Yeah,
3: raven, raven spread is not as prolific. Um, but to me, if we're going to have a sensible and uh, effective um, wildlife management system model, whatever the hell you want to call it, we need to. You, things can't be protected indefinitely. Because what you get then is, you, you know, we have a huge martin population and are getting hammered because Pymarton... Really, and it seems to be we nothing we do, do about
1: it. And do you know that the cynic in me thinks that the organisations that are kind of built around supporting whatever species that might be, you could say uh, birds of prey, we're talking about buzzards potentially, around this sort of scenario that we're building here. It is not in their interest to actually have a, a true success...
3: Because, because, and this again, because this again, they want about America. Yeah, 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 they do talk about America. They the people who are not in the numbers there. Um, the
1: the bear trust. I'm making up a name. I don't know if that's yeah. what it's called. It is not in their interest to suddenly have a massive success because then what's their role?
3: Yeah, uh, and they they have fundraising to do, and it's my and that's as I started saying about the Capricale, My my cynic uh, sits here and thinks that the RSPB aren't particularly bothered about protecting the Capricale from going extinct. Because they'll make more money when they reintroduce it. That's trying, just trying to bring it back. Yeah. yeah, that's and that's me being a cynic, and I don't wholeheartedly believe that. But there's a little bit of you. Uh, thinking, there's a little I bit want, of me that is like, yeah. I wonder, and I don't want to believe that. I'd like to think that everybody's pretty sensible and everybody's trying to do the same thing, but everybody's got. An you got. I mean,
0: you got the Scottish Wildcat as well, which is is another one yeah.
3: where. That's really hard, isn't it?
0: Where you're trying to bring back yeah. potentially species, and we can right. barely—well, we just listed three there. Scottish wildcat, capercaillie, and Atlantic salmon. There's yeah. three species right there that we can barely oh, keep our hands yeah. on. Never <laughs> and, mind. And I think the really
3: interesting thing about cats is there was a really good project that was lottery funded with SNH, and wildcats in Scotland are a bit political. You have to be careful. There is Scottish Wildcat Action. Yes. Yeah. Which is, I think, the charity. Unassociated with SNH. You're nodding, Byron, is this
1: uh, right? I'm, I'm waiting for you to, th- to name the other one. Wildcat Haven. Wildcat Haven. Right, yeah. So, so Wildcat, Wildcat Haven, are, Wildcat Haven are, yeah.
3: are the kind of rogue lot that work on really dodgy signs. So they they are they're connected, they're connected to the Lynx yeah. Trust. Yeah, yeah, and I don't have a lot of time for what they've put out, personally. And then there is Scottish Wildcat Action, which, if I'm right, is the SNH That has government backing. That has government backing. Yeah. And they got some really good lottery funding to do some good stuff. What they couldn't do, they were tra- they were live trapping cats. Um, and again, this would be a great podcast to do with somebody who was a real expert in it. Last and Abby Moore for SNH called Hebe Karas. She was really good on had to deal with her. She was great. Um, they were trapping cats. And if they weren't genetically pure enough to be wild cats, they were neutering them and putting them back out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the idea was they wouldn't breed any more feral cats. And this isn't me being a gamekeeper wanting to kill everything. but they are still going to be interacting with a wildcat population that we are struggling to keep genetically pure. They're going to be ul- actually...
0: ultimately taking food away, potentially. Exactly. You know,
3: they're a territorial animal. There's a lot of complications to that in comparison to getting rid of them. The problem is, is that we, again, our disconnection with nature and everything else, we have a problem with killing stuff.
1: And especially cats. Yeah, cats, cats are cats, that cats, have that domestic have cats, link. Absolutely. People look feel at, Look at Australia right now.
0: Australia are doing a, probably, uh, I guess, probably one of the biggest culls in the world for for because the they're feral decimating cats because their native population. But I mean, from everything from bug to lizard to yeah. bigger species, they're decimating. they are like
3: we were talking about uh, mountain lions earlier. Yeah, cats are just really good at being. They're hunted. very good.
1: They're miniature mountain lions. Yeah. <laughs> what what
3: feral yeah, cats absolutely. are? If you um,
0: watch a domestic cat they are made for killing. That is, they're, yes, so if you look, look at them, they're a killing watch machine. A,
3: and they're fascinating to watch. Yeah. You look at how a cat moves. And this is why I think, I remember, you know, People talking about dog people and cat people and dog people don't like cat people because they always look a bit shifty <laughs> it's because they move it, it's it's cats cats move like a predator uh, your cocker spaniel does not no he moves like <laughs> a <Yeah>. retard <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> does not appear i'm not sat looking at him going god look at that tiny wolf over there no isn't not, he cool apart from the, the, husky, the, hus- the husky the, the know, husky's got a bit of it yeah, yeah. yeah. but not you know if uh, 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 the way a cat Move, you know, it is like you say. It's a tiny mountain lion. It is a good predator, and they will kill songbirds and everything else. And the feral cat will kill pa- capicilly and everything else. And you know, they're a predator and and a competitor to the wild cat. That to me, the 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 cheap, um, robust answer is to 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 persecute. Them. Well, yeah, we you test them, do it put it down, do it yeah, do it selectively, um, and do it right, but. But we shouldn't be afraid of killing things.
0: And but, but, but I think it is changing as well. The because I mean a lot of these problems have come from domesticated cats, where uh, they are uh, some of the big kind of cat charities are really encouraging people saying if you're never going to breed from it, which I would say most people don't, yeah, your cat gets neutered straight away mm. because they're the ones that are interacting with uh, the
3: yeah, the, wild the, the feral cats and yeah. breeding. Um, and I think I think the Wildcats cats are on a really sticky wicket generally. Um, and I, I think, I think it's one of those things that um, nobody's really sure. I think it, you know, that was the the feeling I got from that that project, and it's not maybe a fair um, recollection because there's a lot of people that know a lot more than I do. But it's almost one of those things that, like, once you've established that you've got genetically pure wildcats, what do you do? How do you improve things for them? And this is where it becomes very challenging. And the fact that we don't have a big lobbying and supporting and a, a, a keen um, force to do anything with it
0: if if they'd put as much effort as they did into links to improving the Wildcat then we'd probably be in a bit more of a and situation and actually I watched
3: a really good I've got Netflix recently ah, which you can Netflix and chill pretty now pretty good I can do <laughs> um uh, when the internet works on so it. Is it um, the t- Lost Tigers of Scotland? Yeah, so what's was that. And it was this Lost Tigers of Scotland, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I was like, ooh, documentary about Wildcats. It was like literally the first thing I watched when I got Netflix. And halfway through, they started talking about Lynx.
1: I haven't finished watching it. And I was
3: like, well, hold on. Give the Wildcats a full programme. Like, they're interesting enough. And it was just like it was a piggyback thing about reintroducing Lynx. Oh, okay. And I was sat there going... No, 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 no. Like, leave the, you know, wild cats are interesting and cool enough to have their own program and to be deserved to be saved as, a, as their own entity. Don't use it to piggyback some links on. They That's are they not, are
0: pretty cool when you look at them because they, they do look different. They are very cool Having animals. been
3: lucky enough to spend a bit of time in their habitat, in their areas, in their ecosystems... It's what makes me excited about there being links in Scotland, and I am relatively pro-links. Um, but it is cool. There is something in it when you start finding pads, and you can start tracking them a bit, and you know they're there. It's quite exciting. I'm. I've seen. I've seen a few of them, um, and there is something just quite special about them that is really hard. The only thing I can kind of translate it to is I remember um seeing a pot of walkers once hmm. off um the Sound of Mole. And just being in that presence of something that makes you go, ooh, and gets you goosebumpy. And you kind of go, ah It's it's like it's like being close for me it's like being close to seeker a deer. Um
1: We ate some the other day for the first time in ages. Oh, it's oh so, good. so good.
3: Makes you so like so so mean to other venison <laughs> like you're just so spoiled when you get to eat seeker she's like oh look at this red deer meat oh, it's not as good um but yeah like being really I, i've you know there's been a few times that i've been really quite close to to seeker stags in the rut and that gets me pretty riled up and i get you know i get excited being close to any wildlife and any deer species but seeker deer are something special uh for me and and the, the the few encounters I've I've been lucky enough to have with wildcats, who may have actually been high percentage failed uh, feral genetics, I don't but know. But look very similar. Yeah. Sometimes you like can tell. there's something cool about it. Yeah. And I love the idea of there being lynx in Scotland. I think it would be so fascinating. What
1: do you think from... Uh, what is your personal opinion of what the pitfalls would be of reintroducing them? Where do you think the conflicts would arise?
3: Depending who you listen to, the, uh, and, and uh, no, depend, depending on nobody, the problem is going to be sheep and sheep farming. Um. Uh, I there's a really the the book the book that the links that David Hetherington's written who's a, who works at the Kangaroo National Park who I think is probably involved in the links trust which I think is called the Links and Us the forward is by Anders Hock Paulson uh, that's a good book I meant to bring it to to lend to you because it's a good book it's a book worth reading and in that they are they are pro links and they uh. They detail a lot of uh, a lot of case studies and things where links aren't a problem with sheep stocks, and they they seemingly have the size to back that up. My opinion is that yes, links will probably kill sheep, but I'd be quite happy to see some agricultural subsidy to a point going to mitigate that. But I think it's one of those things that, like I said before, let's give it a go. Let's put some links out there. Let's put six male links into somewhere like Kielder. For argument's sake, or that was other. one of the ones that... that was that was where they were getting really excited about recently. But let's pick a wood that suits it. Fire some links in there with radio tracking collars, and if they cock up and kill everything and we can't cope with them, we'll find them with radio collars, dart them, and put them in a zoo, or kill them, or we'll do whatever. But let's have it. My angle now is, let's let's give it a whirl. I know, off the top of my head, I know three estates in Scotland um, that would that would give it a go of different sizes. If you said, here's two male lynx, kick them out, they 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 go for that. I
1: I think the issue with uh, much of the debate of species like a lynx is that most of the organisations or people who push such things don't want to have an honest discussion about the I was about to say backstop. I don't know if I want to use the yeah. word backstop with all this bre- the bre- the Brexit talk. But yeah, the what, the, what the real management would be when there's an issue because they all want to it create a to scenario shielded in a where way. they're shielded and protected for in, in, indefinitely. Like-
3: I, 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 I know exactly what you mean. The way I would put it is slightly differently in that I think we as rural people who are directly affected by these things in a lot of cases, I think we have a fear based on history of being fed half a story, and, exactly. and that's what the problem is. Yeah. I think that's the problem. I think we have got that there is there is there is significant evidence of us being fed half truths and half stories, and I think that uh, my father, my father, hardly entertains the idea of rewilding and putting links in, because he just doesn't trust the idea, and he isn't interested in finding out more about it. He's quite close-minded about it. We don't need them. But, uh, and there is a definite angle as well with all of these things that there's a reason that we wipe them out. You know, historically, when, we, when life was considerably harder, we had considerably less technology, we had considerably less disposable income and means for these things, we put a hell of a lot of time and effort into killing things like lynx and wolves and bears. And, and there's equally an argument, I think, that we would probably have lynx in this country if we weren't an island. Yeah, you know yeah, they've yeah, they, well, they well, repopulated Europe. Europe. Yeah, a lot of yeah, Europe. Yeah, yeah. Um, so and and that would be so much easier. I think if we were talking about the links that had turned up in Lothian that had walked across the Dogger Land, you know, if that was still yeah. there, it wouldn't be the same as someone actively putting them there. Because I think as soon as people start about reintroducing things, they are saying they're either saying it openly, like Mombio is, or they're sort of inferring it's being said. It. Yeah, they're inferring that. Um, the the way uh, our rural places, our wild places, whatever you want to call them, the way they've been managed isn't good enough, and we've made a mistake. And that's a hard thing to hear if you've got generations of your family invested in that. You know, I've got pictures of my grandmother's grandfather standing at his farm with his shotgun and his dog, and and, and you know, and all these things go back. and And as soon as somebody criticizes, we are we're a defensive people. You know, we've seen fox hunting taken away from us. We see significant attacks, in adverted commas, on our way of life frequently. And and we have this instantly defensive standpoint, which I am guilty of taking sometimes and I'm definitely understanding of. And I think that's the whole problem, a lot of the problem, not the whole problem, but a lot of the problem with rewilding is because it is, you know, George Monbiot saying that the, um, you know, the sheep in the Lake District have destroyed the ecosystem is very hard to hear if you're a sheep farmer in Lakeland. And Frank Fraser-Darling calling the Scottish Highlands a wet desert is very hard to hear if you're a, a, a Highland deerstalker, a Highland gamekeeper, or a Highland farmer, whatever it is. But at the same time, I think we are all aware that, you know, we need a diversity of of ecosystems and I am quite pro seeing I you know I've I've been lucky enough to work in Caledonian Forest uh, you know some of the oldest Caledonian forest in Scotland and it's a very special place. It is it's, and I've taken people unique. there mm-hmm. I've been, I've I've been lucky enough to take people there who were shooting people who were hunting people whatever they were I've taken people there and I've never had one of them not say, God, this is a very special place. It has there is something about an old growth canopy forest in the same way that i've been in some oak woodlands down in england that had a similar feel to them it's like it's nature's those big forests are like nature's cathedrals or something there's something <laughs> that's a nice way of putting yeah, it there's something it. in a forest and in a in an ancient forest that i think is very very close yeah. to 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 where we've come from um and And, you know, like I say, some of those people I've taken to Caledonian Forest are very anti-rewilding and they're they're very anti, you know, or almost maybe not anti, you know, that they're, they are biased against planting more trees and rewilding and that kind of stuff because they love shooting grouse and stalking deer and things like that that are associated with our managed Heather Hill. But you take them into a Caledonian Forest and they all think it's special. But they it doesn't. It
1: the thing is, it doesn't need to be one. It doesn't need to be all or nothing.
0: No, and and that's. And, and it, and I, I think like, that a lot of people view that, it like that. That's.
3: Uh, th- uh, you're exactly right, and I think um, it is. It is. It is. You know, we we do a lot of things well in this country, and we do a few things badly. But let's have some places with Caledonian forests and lynx running about and that kind of stuff. In my head, but it doesn't mean wiping out yeah, all exactly. the deer in Scotland. But let's means have restricting let's have some driven grouse moors too, and, and that's
0: you know. We also have a very complicated situation in Scotland, particularly where some things come at a political angle, at, at, at which is a
3: complete yeah politically driven politically rather than politically driven, driven, driven so yeah, yeah. and some uh, honest And that you know that makes everything more complicated. <laughs> and I think that just that's, muddies, that muddies the it. Adds the another layer. Very of, much of so. Very so.
1: W- one species that's along the lines that we've been discussing, uh, but is maybe it's not as controversial. It's kind of accepted as wild boar. Yeah. I mean wild boar are here I, I, and I think they're here to stay. Absolutely. But I don't think they're necessarily viewed with the amount of respect as a species that they deserve in some places.
3: Yeah. I um yeah, I, I I've not had a lot to deal with them at all. Um I think they're well, they're native. They they were here for a long time and we wiped them out. Uh I think we're seeing them spread and I think we will continue to see them spread because their their habitat that they've been in for now quite a long time, which was a lot of wet really, really fucking miserable west coast commercial forestry yeah. is getting harvested. Yep. And they're being pushed from that. And they're being pushed east and they're being pushed north as far as my understanding of it is. Yeah, There's a good population. And that's, yeah, and and that is, that is putting wild boar into contact with places where they can do damage because they're not a commercial Sitka spruce forestry. And it's putting them in contact with people. And I think when wild boar get into the cast of Sterling or the great... Uh, barley farms of Aberdeenshire, and then you'll see the, Then you'll see th- the. Conflict. I think we're going to see the conflict that we see in Germany at the moment.
1: But but in the but environment that they truly enjoy, and
3: in our magical Caledonian forest yeah, or whatever, they it is.
1: actually it's good for them, and it's very very good for that habitat as well. You speak
3: to any forester, and they'll talk about the benefits of having pigs in the wood. Yeah. Oh, they're uh, always overturning the. You know, pigs are pigs are pretty good things. There's a really great uh, not a project, it's a business. But Linerbrack Croft just in the North Cairngum, south of Abbey Uh They're doing a lot of cool stuff with pigs and woodland crofting and that kind using of Using them as part of the agricultural yeah, system. You, just, yeah, not wild boar, just pigs. Just pigs. Um, but if you can do it with pigs, you might as well do it with wild pigs. The um, thing is,
1: most of Europe, manage, they do manage their pig population. And yeah, in, in they, parts of Germany. They've got this great history of it too. They do have a great history, of which we, uh, well, we might have had, but it's certainly been lost because we haven't yes. had boar in in great numbers for many, many years. I don't actually know what the length of time I think,
3: be. I think what's really interesting and what's going to be really telling, and I view this as an outsider because I've had nothing to do with it, but um, most of the wild boar management, in inverted commas, as in culling, that's happening in Scotland at the moment. I think it's happening uh, yeah. using night vision equipment, thermal equipment, spotlights, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think a lot of um, it's been done in forestry, forestry which is completely me. legal. Uh, a lot yeah. of it's forestry based. A lot of it is then, you know, in Dumfries they've been doing this for quite a long time. Uh, but I think what's really interesting is in my limited conversations with Germans and Europeans generally, um, they have like a fine system for people shooting lead sows. Yeah, they in, have. a have just been. They there have now. A, a massive complex management system around yeah. wild boar that they do to manage They wild want
1: boars. a proper age structure. Yeah. And, the, and that the management benefits is...
3: for their impacts on the environment, as far exactly. as I understand. Yep. And we've got lads shooting pigs. Any pig. And I think that might be really telling because of from my very limited understanding of how they disperse and how breaking up um, sounder, that's the yeah. correct term, isn't yep. it? Sounder of wild boar. Breaking up that structure can impact the population. If you shoot the lead sow, then it goes from only her breeding to other sows breeding. So younger sows yeah, breeding. You know, and all these things. I I, th- I think this could be a situation, if we're not careful, where active management does the opposite of what we think it's going to do. And we all end up in a worse shit.
0: I, I've spoken to a few Germans about this, uh, particularly uh, two that are very, very knowledgeable because they kind of studied it in Germany. If you indiscriminately shoot wild boar, your population increases. That's yeah, that's that's, that's you know, the bottom line of what I've
3: heard yeah, too. Yeah.
1: So why why do you think as a, a hunting community in this country and as a species that we can legitimately and legally hunt, yeah. why aren't we actually being proactive about a species that we are still uh, in kind of control of suggesting how we would manage it and actually doing something that would be science-based with it Oof. rather than indiscriminately culling? Uh, Because, because as a as a um, as a species that people can enjoy hunting, and they taste bloody good, and wow, yeah, what (laughs) an end product you get! Absolutely, it's an incredible asset,
3: or it It, could be. It is. I think the i i i've I've two i've two answers to that. Um, The first one is a bit more factual. And the second one is probably my more more my opinion. The factual answer I think is that there are massive there are massive uh pest in forestry situations. Especially for in, young plantations. In, in young plantations where deer are. And therefore I think our gut reaction is the, the the foresters reaction as it is to so many animals is to kill them all. Uh preferably immediately. Um and before they do too much damage. Uh and therefore, you get people like myself, whose job it is to kill stuff that we're told to kill, and we start shooting. them, And and we shoot them when we see them, and we go and lamp them, or we shoot them in, with night or we, we do whatever, and we shoot. Whatever you have a license and, to do. Yeah, exactly. And kind of management obligations and management practices go out the window, and somebody's paying you no amount of money to kill something. And that's well, it's management for the, the, the trees. Need. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, which, managing... which,
0: which you can't... Yeah. Like, the forestry people, you... like. That is their livelihood. That you yeah. can't blame them for looking after. But equally, the,
3: and this is this is a slightly more deer management point, but it's something that really riles me: is how badly, how little the forest industry listens to the wildlife management industry. It is ridiculous. Since Ronnie Rose and the Estelle Moore project, which, if you're not familiar with, look up his book is is interesting. What they did at Estellmore with relation to deer numbers and how deer management affect tree management is fascinating. Um, but we still don't have intelligent forest design for deer management. We still plant everything and just accept that we're going to lose 25% of it and shoot all the deer we can. And then it grows to a point that we don't have any open ground and they still expect us to shoot loads of deer.
1: Which is the complete opposite to the way they manage um, forestry in
3: on the continent. In, in, in the continent, places like Scandinavia, where I, I studied forestry at college and we were always being preached to about this hallowed management system they use in the continent. But we just sit here doing the same old thing that doesn't really work that well. But we just keep doing it over and over again. Um, you know, leave open, leave open areas around things like streams. You're not going to grow a good timber there anyway, and it means we can shoot deer, which are a massive pest to you.
1: And and it's better for yeah. uh, downstream.
3: And and on a very very basic level. And I was having this conversation last night with some friends that I was with. They they do a lot of um, plantation management. You know, managing rabbits, hares, deer in plantations. Um, and there. They're, they're dealing with a forestry company that is planting trees before they finish the fence. <laughs> That's not clever. No, yeah. I, I've always said before you plough, before you plant, before you turf, whatever you're going to do, put the fence up, kill everything inside the fence and then start planting the trees. And then you've only got to deal with what's coming in rather than what's already in there. But that isn't accepted. So I think on a, a, the, the, my first, from a wild boar point of view, I think that influences people. I think the fact that you've got foresters saying, kill them all, kill them all. I think that's an influence. Um, The second one is shifting baselines, which is a concept that people talk about a lot in relation to all sorts of wildlife management, which is um, the idea that you accept the situation of when you were a child or when you first learn about something as the status quo. So if curlews go extinct... I will miss the cry of the curlew in the springtime because I grew up and I remember it very that's,
1: well. I think that's also a poem, The Cry of the Curlew. Is it? I, I think so, yeah. Go or on, it, so was, or, was, or was, it was the title of a speech it, given in the it, Welsh Parliament, I think. It could be. Yeah.
3: Um, I'm a very well-read individual, so I occasionally... <laughs> of course, <he's> like, <laughs> he said it, jest. But, you know, I, I, if, if the curlew goes extinct in 10 years, right? I'm 25. Uh, curlew goes extinct in the next 10 years, I will miss that sound in springtime. Yeah. But my children will not because they won't remember it.
1: They won't know that they need to So miss- when
3: people talk about protecting curlews, those of us 25 and over, for argument's sake, know the curlew. They remember fields where the curlew was. They, th- that species has a place in that landscape to them.
1: And in your life history.
3: In your life history. That's the crucial thing. You remember it. So therefore, you will be pro the protection of the curlew you'll be pro the protection of atlantic salmon atlantic for salmon me. whatever it is but your children who don't remember it don't prioritize it in the same way no um you know uh, what are they call not a stone, not stone crow, oh god um my memory is really shocking today I'm afraid golden plover um yeah. uh, were you were you going for i, was, go- I was i was going for the one that's now pretty much extinct because of hedges, and I can't remember the name of the bird. Because of oh, hedges, or so lack of hedges. Yeah, lack of hedges. So, I, and I don't remember them at all. So, when people talk about reintroducing them, I can't remember the name of them right now. That's a prime example. I am living proof that I, I, am, I am right, and yet, therefore, not very clever. Um, you know, birds that went exist that went extinct in this country, or where I grew up before I was there. I'm not as
1: animated about
3: yeah, saving. Exactly. You don't get the same. Like you say, you remember there being more salmon. So now there's less salmon, you're really bothered. But your children, who might be born in the next 10 years, so they we get like, bothered well, about stuff when they're 10 well, years. Well, there was
1: never yeah. any salmon here. Yeah, exactly.
3: There was never salmon. So why are you so bothered about them? We're just not salmon fishermen. And I think there is there is that with the World War II in that there's a, there is a, a a resistance to them because they weren't here. You know, if you think the average policy-making person is probably between the age of 40 and 60. Like the people that represent the National Farmers Union and make their policy or the government or or the Gamekeepers Organization or whoever, they're probably between 40 and 60. Yeah, because they, they've sort of served there their, their time be, exactly. grafting. Wild and now haven't been there. Lynx haven't been there. Wolf haven't been there. They're not bothered because they weren't there. And subconsciously in your head, it was right when you were a child. That was how it should be. And I'm that's sure that character ca- like, does shifting carry baseline, a lot yeah. or something like that. Uh, um, like, um paradigm, it, yeah. Paradigm. It's it's a it's a proper scientific thing that I'm not clever enough to understand, but that's yeah, that's the basic I'm really annoyed a I think I, I heard
1: um uh Dick no not Dick. Um what Dick Balharry's son. What's his first
3: name? Oh uh, Richard. I
1: don't think it is. Uh he he was talking about it at a a chat at Schoon Palace Game Fair right. Um last year. All on rewilding, right? Shifting baselines.
3: Yeah, that would be that would be about right. Sorry, I'm I'm presently being very rude. Byron, uh, no, uh, Daryl, with yeah. your internet, can you try and find out what this bird is that I can't remember? Yes, yeah, yeah, so I nice. tell you what we're going to do. I'm currently
1: looking right now. Daryl can look up the bird. I'm going to take a toilet break because we've been talking for a long time. Have we? And also, I can go and put some wood on the fire because I'm also getting
3: cold. Probably, <laughs> probably a very good idea. And
1: then we can pick it up from here um, and talk about our social responsibility because i know it was, it was one cool. of the things on our, our list to try and Absolutely. touch
3: should we also get a coffee Shall we have let's a little do break? that as get well
1: coffee. cool and we're back we're coffeed up we've got the fire on so i'm no longer freezing my nuts off uh we were going to talk about social responsibilities but we've decided since we've actually talked for two hours already <laughs> and realized how long we've been yeah, talking shit bad, for uh that we are going to instead oh well actually uh, before we skip to what we're going to skip to we found the bird that you were talking about. That oh disappeared.
3: yeah, I hope you remembered now. <laughs> the, the corn crake, that yes. was the word I was looking for, which is a red level in the UK, so it's sort of critically, critically endangered. I can't say I've ever seen one in my life. No, no I've never seen one. I don't think I have. So. I'll tell you what
1: I did see, which is either red or amber listed, so I see them every, every time I go out onto the foreshore, is red shanks.
0: I'm
3: going to Google
1: yeah. that right now, and I see quite a lot talk. of red shanks up on the uh, up on the moors. I saw the something north.
3: the other day that was really cool. I saw a Slavonian grebe.
1: Oh yes, I know what that looks like.
3: Yeah, and I want to know if that's endangered.
1: How many different grebes are there? Because a lot, a lot. I think yeah.
3: there is a lot of grebes.
1: Yeah, and they all the have a similar look grebe. about them, <laughs> being the same family.
3: The horned grebe or Slavonian grebes are a relatively small water bird in the family. Ooh... Oh, <laughs> it's this
1: pronunciation time Poddy day I'm sure that's
2: exactly. <laughs> <it>. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, probably not. not.
1: Uh you would think that this would be uh apparently
0: this is from the RSPB's website. There's oh, 25,000 breeding pairs of what? In, of red shanks in the UK. Oh, red shanks, yeah. yeah. Okay. 130,000 wintering
3: ones. So I wonder where they actually on top of that. On top of so that. Yeah, that. Should we listen to the noise of the Slovenian group? If you can. Where is that from? RSVB website. I thought you didn't have uh, internet. It's got one little bar of wood. There you go. We could do sometimes. a whole
1: podcast of bird sounds.
3: Yeah, <laughs> just just the three of us sitting on the RSPB website. You see this? I think this is great. I've well done, the RSPB because their website is is sensationally good. I use it all ID. the time for bird I ID. ID. I use it all the day, and I, I, you know, I think the RSPB have a really key place in 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 the UK and educating people about birds and nature. Now, I I need to say this before
0: I forget because I forgot we were talking about Seeker earlier and we were talking about their environment. Now, the sound they make. If you if you didn't know what they were, is absolutely terrifying.
3: Uh, have you ever heard them really close up? Well, yeah, I'm relatively close, close up. It's like stabbing a child. It is the most horrifically petrifying they whistle. People so so yeah, Sika so yeah. do whistle, but they don't, they scream. Yeah. And Seeker stags make the most harrowing call. And I've only ever really experienced it just as it's getting dark in a wood. And it is just
2: it's I awesome. Put it this way, I had a, a, gl- a
3: guest once and he shot a stag on the some, hill. No, oh. what I'll do is uh, Are you gonna I'm going to insert it here.
0: <laughs> now,
1: seamlessly, without you knowing. Oh, that's very good, isn't it? Without you, uh,
0: seamlessly, you've now just heard it. Now,
3: we the heard a lot of technology. We
1: heard a lot of <laughs> Seeker Coin. We did a job in Ireland at yeah. uh, end of last year. And it was just seeker central. I'd really
3: like to go to Wicklow and have a look at the seeker there because it's so different. But I had a I had it t- for those of you that aren't familiar with the seeker, and I'm sure most of you are. But anyway, it's a cool story. I had a guest stalking a few years ago, and he shot his red stag quite early on in the morning. And he was wondering what else he could do that day. And I said, "Well, I'll put you in a high seat, and you can shoot a seeker stag." And he was he was a very competent stalker in his own right. I wouldn't normally leave people up a high seat, but I knew him quite well. Uh, he's very good. He shoots excellently. He knows his stuff. Uh, so I put him in this high seat and I said, look, they're probably going to come out there. Um, you know, pick pick something that's not wonderful. I said, don't shoot any big eight pointers. Don't shoot any big sixes. Just take a, you know, take a take a smallish goal seeker. And he'd seen them before. So he was quite au fair with the whole thing. Put him in this high seat. Uh, gave him a walkie-talkie. And I had driven, I was driving to pick up another guest to put them in a high seat with me so they could shoot a seeker. And I probably got just about to the lodge door. So 25 minutes from where I put him off and I got on the radio and he was demanding to be picked up because he'd heard it and it scared the shit out of him (laughs) and he refused to be there on his own. Really? And he didn't want to shoot one. He's never shot a seeker and he won't shoot one because he was like, I don't want to throw bullets at something that makes that noise. (laughs) (laughs) And they are, but you look at them, they're like, the only thing that's comparable to them... I, I was told it was a cape buffalo because they look at you like you owe them money, and it's the big eyebrows. Yeah, that's what it now, is. They it? look yeah. mean. Um, they look angry. And this ties just, this. Yeah. So so a week ago, I got run over by a seeker stag. <laughs> so I was telling you about it earlier, which is quite funny. Um, I was stalking. Uh, I was stalking in a in a forest contract that I have. Um, it's got quite a lot of seeker in it. I shot a seeker because of the environment. So a group seeker came out just as it was getting dark. Um, there was a yearling, a hind, and a calf. And which deer you shoot in that situation, to me, depends where you are. But because I was in a woodland, because there was a yearling there, I shot the calf first. On the hill, I'd have probably shot the hind because the calf and the yearling wouldn't have gone that far you and I'd could have, have been able to dispatch the calf with, with relative certainty. But in a wood, that calf will quite often follow the yearling and get away. And then whether or not that calf is going to do well or not is very much up for debate. So I decided to shoot the calf first. Shot the calf in the head, reloaded, and everything was very skitty. But I got a shot at the hind. It wasn't the best shot. It happens. Uh, I split the front of the gut. Um, deer haunched and ran. Very typical gut shot reaction. So right, okay. Um, my my operating procedure in that situation is is generally to give it a good rest, half an hour, an hour maybe before I follow it up. I got my big Labrador, who who's quite an experienced blood trailing dog, and is quite a quite a good deer dog in that he has taught himself to suffocate deer um, by closing over their face, which is very effective. So I went down to the uh, truck, walked down, got Bob. Your dog's called Bob? Yeah, my Labrador's called Bob. Have you not met Bob? Big uh, yellow I thing. Maybe, you must no, have no, met I don't him. know if I did. Oh, no, we Massive. did, yeah, when I first like met 36 you. 36 kilogram, yeah. yeah, muckle thing. Bob. Uh, Bob. So I went and got Bob, went back up, put Bob into the woodland, and, and it had run out of a clearing. Into, like, if I said fat Christmas trees was basically what these were like, they were maybe 10 foot tall, six spruce trees, and they'd grown in really dense, but there was a deer path going into it, so I put bonnet, and I waited, and I was getting cold, and it was now, by this point, dark, and I was pretty miserable, so I put my head torch on, and I started following in, because I was like, the dog can go quite a distance, and I don't want to be that far behind him. So anyway, so I'm toddling through this wood, and I can't really see anything, and I sort of heard something in front of me, but it was quite windy and I didn't really know what was happening. And it heard it sounded a bit like a scuffle. And then the next thing I knew, I was completely on my ass. It was like I'd been stood nowhere near a rugby pitch and someone had rugby tackled me. Like Jonah Lomu had rugby <laughs> tackled me. I was properly, properly on my ass. And, and with all due respect... It, I'm it not ta- small, man. <laughs> You're not small. Yeah, You're take, you take a bit of knocking down. <laughs> yeah, um... Yeah, I am not a small man, uh, and this all I saw was this underside of deer shitting over the top of me, and she stood right on my chest, which was very painful, uh, and knocked the wind out of me completely. And I was sort of lying there going, Phew, "Fucking hell, this is this is pretty shit." And then the dog jumped over the top of me <laughs> and also stood on my head, so I wasn't very pleased with him. And um, And anyway, so so I then followed them back out the way I came in, and yawn into the it went into a stand of really tall, mature larches, like thirty, you know, quite open. And I picked the dog up in the head torch, and he killed the hind, so that was fine. Um, But that hind weighed thirty-five kilograms, and not like properly knocked me for six, and I was fairly bruised, and it was it was it was something. And I think what it was so the next day or the day after that or quite recently afterwards I followed that trail in and she got into a a sort of a little clearing like a little a little hole in the canopy that was probably about 8 feet wide so I think what she did is she turned and she stood there and as the dog ran in she's kicked the dog and chased out the way she came in because she thinks she was dead ended and then she's just run over me because I happened to be in the way Um, but the dog was in a pretty he was limping pretty badly the next day and was generally not very happy um and they are secret. I just have so much respect for secret. They are tough as hell, but they are the one deer that I would think twice about, especially now. But even before, you you know, they are serious. They don't fuck about. Um, the, I've heard more stories of people being cornered, and you know, especially stags having a go at people following them when they've been shot.
1: Yeah, they're definitely else. more aggressive.
3: Yeah, and they're rather the dogs up more a hundred percent a hundred percent you put a dog on a seeker and he is or she is they are they are they are riled up I spoke a to a few people about that, that different character about them yeah there's something in the blood there's something in the adrenaline that there's a fight in them and I wouldn't I couldn't have taken that hind off the dog I couldn't have gone in and said yeah fuck off mate I'm gonna go out with this he had to have his bit of time to I, I'd have lost a finger. <laughs> um, so that was a, well, that was it's a, it's a minor side story about Seeker, Sorry,
1: it shows you the importance of having a, a dog when you're doing. Yeah, in that in up. that sort of
3: camera, it's it's pretty it's pretty pretty hard to do without a, a decent dog. And there's obviously there's the tracking services that you can call up on and stuff. But
1: Sam, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to, to not play with your cable oh sorry you can play with anything else on your person because right, <laughs> uh because uh you're getting handling noise through your microphone oh is that really a thing yes. oh, yeah all right oh, it's sorry. Actually i'm fidgeting sorry, um buddy. now to kind of wrap this up but to, to go back to what you were talking about just before you gave yeah us your sorry a, your, your before your i anecdote. was i was oh, distracted <laughs> you even with um you were just saying how great the the rspb's uh website, website is. was yeah and uh, i it is a resource that I use all the time, especially on the foreshore, because invariably you see stuff, I just don't know what it is. Just don't know. Look at my binos and check it, listen to the sounds, or you might hear a sound you don't know, so it's, it's awesome for that. And I would l- love to see a situation in the future where there isn't this immediate knee-jerk n- knee jerk negative reaction towards an organization like that, that does do a lot of good things, they might not agree with us on any any number of aspects and maybe haven't necessarily been friendly themselves but i think we've probably given uh, as good as we've got in some circumstances but that kind of brings me to to organizations and things that are happening now there's a lot going on particularly in scotland we were hounds were um hunting with hounds has been brought up just in the the last couple couple of days Uh, but an organization which didn't exist a year ago or certainly didn't exist 18 months ago yeah uh, and we but, had a chat about this, didn't we? Mm, uh, we're talking about the BGA. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but seems to be doing a lot of good things in the right direction is the BGA. Yeah, the British, British Game, game Alliance.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, in terms of promoting game as a food source, what's what's your take being on it? Because to be honest, I've been and still am a little bit. I've been very impressed recently, but. Pretty reserved as to how successful they were going to be, and the direct. I still want to see more more yeah. of the direction, but you but can't you're take Scottish, a, so You're you, negative about <laughs> <new things. laughs> You can't take away from the the effort that's been put in. Um, certainly, from what I've seen recently, absolutely
3: not. No, I think it's a. Uh, I uh, well, I I have a few th- thoughts about this kind of thing. I um, I don't actually think we needed a new organization. I, I think that was a. I don't think that was a bad move. What I'd like to see is one organization. Which we don't have. I don't think we'll ever have. There's too many politics around it. People are too um, tribal. Yeah, and that's you know it, it is it is just it is pretty crap that it's it's a bit like the whole Brexit and, uh, and not to be political because I'm not a political person, but there is the big Brexit issue, and around that is there is such. Point scoring,
1: internal politics,
3: internal politics, bitch fighting, whatever you want to call it, and I think the shooting world is very much like that. My my experience of organisations is people winning points and people trying to prove things, and I think we're at a time we're at a time in our history where we can't afford that. We need, uh, and I am convinced we need a we need a single voice that speaks for everybody. We can't have eight voices because nobody listens to them all. Um we it need kind of signal. dilutes the message somewhat I think it me? does, and I think I think we can all agree on the basic things and imagine the imagine the might and the force and the knowledge we could put together um My big problem is that say say we've got eight organizations we probably do. I struggle to see reasons to join most of them, which is really terrible um you know as a as a professional deer stalker and a passionate Countryman is that the term? That's probably the term. I I guess. think it's countryman. more of an English term, but yeah, countryman. Yeah, I, d- I don't, I, I don't know I I see anything used. wrong with it. Yeah, as a
0: term, um,
3: woodsman you know, would be the American oof, version. Yeah, you, no. you are from South of the waltz. So. I am indeed, <laughs> um, but you know, as someone that's passionate about all facets of 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 the British countryside, the sports that are in it, the management tools that are in it, however you want to, you know, whatever I am, um, there is no organisation that properly represents me. And I think that's very sad. I think that's uh, beyond being very sad. I think that's quite worrying. Um, and I, th- I, I think we probably should have one great organisation that does things on behalf of all of us, and we can all give a considerable amount of money to a year. That is something that bothers me. On a slightly separate point, and I will get, I will wing this back to the the BGA. I promise. But um, we are really, as a people, we are so shit at giving money to stuff. And yet we are so keen to spend money on stuff. Like, if I tot up the amount of money my average guest, client, friend is wearing and carrying when they go stalking. It's a lot. I reckon you're over two grand. Mm. I reckon comfortably... Um, unless, the time-
1: unless they've got a blazer, rifle and a blaser scope and then that's, yeah. that's two grand in the scope.
3: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and... And, another two grand the rifle. <laughs> yeah I was going to say and, and not my choice they could be they could um, be walking in ten grand and that's without yeah, a pair of balls I, like, and balls. absolutely yeah. yeah you you could easily I'm just trying to think so if I if I so I'll, I'll, as the example I am wearing a so I'll be wearing a 250 quid set of boots nearly 100 quid in gaiters uh, if I put my Swazi dungarees on which I don't at the moment because they leak but hopefully they're fixing that soon I've got 400 quid in dungarees I've got a set of thermals that are probably 100 quid on I've got a jacket that's probably nearly five hundred quid. You're two, getting
1: you're getting up towards two grand. now. two
3: thousand yeah. quid in binoculars. Yeah, so there's four. Yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna. You're not carrying a rifle. I'm yet. not. I was gonna say I'm not gonna add up how much is in my rifle because it will <laughs> genuinely <laughs> make me cry. Um, you know, a, sh- a set of shooting sticks is two hundred quid now. Um, but if you turned around to the average person and said membership of this organisation is hundred and fifty pounds, you would have a hell of a time getting out of them. That's half a set of boots. But I would need a lot of convincing before I gave any organisation. I Put it this way, there is no organisation in the UK at the moment that I would give 150 quid to. That's a sad state of affairs.
1: Because you want to see what they're doing beyond yeah. making sure that they can promote themselves enough yeah. to get your membership back. Yeah, ab- absolutely.
3: And I, and I want to see actual results and I want to see people that genuinely care. So
1: what kind of results would you want to see? So what's missing? Like, what's, what I mean, what's obviously, you think there's a large spectrum missing, but what if we start to to break it down to a basic and level? Put me
3: right on the spot. Yeah. Um,
1: what what do we need to start looking at? I
3: think there's a lack of joined up thinking. I think there is a lack of representation for, um, in the words of Hotfuzz, the greater good. <laughs> um, I, I I think there is, for instance, um, you, you you take you take deer management right. Bad practice in deer management, which exists. People putting culling of deer before humane deer culling exists. You know, numbers over where it's shot, how it's shot, how it's yep. dealt with, definitely exists. There's a lot of examples of that, public examples of that. Nobody's bothered. When when uh, the Loch Lomond and the Trossachs thing came up two years ago about putting helicopters back in, what did the British Deer Society say on behalf of the deer for deer welfare, which supp- supposedly is their remit? They said nothing. They had no opinion. Uh, and I think that is pretty shocking. Um, I think there is a, there's a certain sort of untouchable things that they that the organisations are unwilling to do unwilling to talk about, which I think is quite short sighted. Um, there was a really interesting debate at Schoon Game Fair this year, which I was in the audience for which the BGA was involved in. And, and, you know, I I put my hand up and said that all of these problems stem from a lack of education. What are we going to do about it? And do we think that mandatory training is acceptable? And the, British, the uh, BASC, the British Association for Shooting and Conservation, basically said, oh, we don't, we're not going to do anything because we're scared of losing members. They uh, don't want to enforce yeah, mandatory they, training, they don't, they, they, and, uh, and they don't want to be overly critical. They, the, you know, the problem is I think everybody gets a little bit too, and I can I can understand why because you know every everything's a business and everybody's got to be paid and all that sort of stuff. But we haven't got, not that it's right in America, but you've got the likes of the Backcountry Hunters Association in America, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, and they're like a, a sort of a young, spunky. Bit renegade say what they think kind of organization and i'm not saying that that's what we need but i think we need a bit more a bit more action and a little bit less just sitting there i i I, so-
0: I sometimes feel that the way that some of the organizations are
3: is they're a little bit more like politicians more interested in keeping their job absolutely no i i completely agree and I to, to, think, some, to some extent, yeah, And I think they have. I think these organizations, and I don't know because I'm not an expert, but I think these organizations have a lot of money. I don't understand how they can't have a lot of money. Some of these organizations, and I wonder why they're not spending it. Having lots of money in the bank account does nobody any good. It just keeps accountants happy. Let's spend a shitload of money lobbying about what matters to their membership. Because I don't think that's happening. I'm not saying that they're not lobbying. I think they are, but I think that there is a lot of unspent money that could be used for something. I think there's a lot, of, know, wasted look a at lot the, of wasted look at money. A lot of wasted money. Employing people for the sake of employing yeah, people. Yeah, and I I think that's right. And uh, it's hard because nobody ever wants to know examples. But let's look at the Basque Media Centre that we will I think all that's remember a good being example, built. Yeah. yeah. Can we honestly say that Basc's media output has been? Uh, and I know this is. This will this will offend somebody, no doubt, and people will dislike me saying it. But can we say that it is equivalent to the amount of money they've spent? How much did your office cost that we're sat in?
1: Um,
3: you mean well, like the well, full, if the we full, were to actually build the this full building. production?
0: No, no, no. Like let's our let's, equipment,
3: yeah, our equipment, yeah, yeah your equipment. Uh, well like, include, like including like, Including including, like really.
0: including the camera equipment, you're probably and the computers you're probably looking at thirty thousand. Yeah, maybe may between grand. thirty and fifty. Let's say yeah. fifty grand. Let's
3: go yeah. absolutely fucking top end. Yeah. Um,
1: but but add another fifteen you can build this building we're sitting in. Yeah. yeah. But But know, they did build a building. They, they built a building. Yeah. So,
3: so let's say hundred grand. Okay. Yeah. Let's say fuck it. Let's say it's a quarter of a million quid. Look at your output, and this isn't blowing like smoke at your ass because I hate doing that. We didn't I'd... pay him to say this, <laughs> no, they didn't, and I wouldn't because I don't really like them. But uh, <laughs> um, look at your output and the expense of your output and what it has done, and then look at what that media center's produced. That and was I, a million pounds. It, million pounds. I thought it
1: was more. Is it more? I thought it maybe was, it was the number the I had then. in my mind, we
3: was should I had a million in my head as well. Yeah. I thought it was two and a half million quid this spent. Maybe. They? even if it's a million, it's yeah. a lot of money. Uh, the... <laughs> either which way I and and I know you know don't get me wrong there's a lot more to, that's a very simplistic it, argument it is, it and, I, and I'm not <laughs> meaning to simplify it, but I'm just saying that as someone that helped pay for that because I think at the time I was a Basque member I'm not a Basque member now um, I'm I am I'm not a Basque member I'm an SGA member the Scottish Gamekeepers Association um, and I think they could be improving things. I, uh, the bottom line is I don't think there's an, an organisation that I'm really happy with. And maybe there never will be. Maybe, maybe that will. is an impossible task.
0: Uh, I think, uh, um, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, about the the media centre yeah. as well, and exactly the same thing. What, what's happening with... Maybe someone on the show knows I'd what's, really, what's I'd happening. Re- I'd I would really like, like
3: to know. as you're the biggest podcast in the britain aren't Um, you yeah i think you've got some vaguely impressive statistic anyway um, and however many people listen to these things apart from when i'm on it (laughs) um i'd i think basque it would be great to have somebody from basque come on here and prove me wrong and say actually sam you're wrong this is what we've done with that money this is what we've achieved this is the quantifiable result of that spending and then i'll come back on here and apologize and maybe even join
0: I tell you what, though their output for when the Welsh thing was going on for the video was that really piss poor. It was. Yeah. It was shocking. And, and, I, I and, looked and, at it, and I <laughs> a, a child could have made that video that they they put. And I'm not saying, oh well, we should have done it. I'm not saying that at all. Anyone could have done it, but their output was was shocking.
1: And I'll just I'll point out just as a as a matter of fairness here is this year for the first year since ever I joined Bass because I know. Or have got to know some people in it that have given me some faith in the future of it. Yeah. So I joined it. And so so we we are making these criticisms. Yeah. But I would, I'm I'm not sitting and here there being a hypocrite or trying to be I hypercritical of it because I am currently a member, as I've just right. admitted. So
3: good. And there is an element of. But me, I agree with what you've said. There is a big part of me that feels unfair in what I've just said and what I think. However, and there is uh, there is people that will tell me that well change it from the inside out. But for those people that think that as I'm saying this or have thought that generally, we should all join the RSPB. We really should. Um and I'm not an RSPB member either. I I just I I struggle I, I really struggle with the organization thing at the moment. That's and we'll put a line under that for me at the moment because we need to talk about the BGA, which I think is doing good stuff. Um but even then I think I don't know if it's being supported as much as it should be. I don't think it's being pushed as much as it should be by the other organizations
1: i think what you said initially was um i don't know if we needed another organization and i think the element of that that i'd like to pull out is i think they are doing things now that other organizations should have always been doing we, 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 and we, it's ridiculous and that to they be haven't. fair
3: who i wh- who gets a special mention in this because i think he's done some grand work quietly is jack not who runs the countryside alliance game to eat campaign okay and
1: there is also, to be fair, just while I remember. There that, is a Basque equivalent, and I, what is the name of it? Natural larder. Don't know. No, that's S N H. That's people. That's good. But they are connected somehow to
3: Basque. Yeah, Basque. Basque help. That's yeah. a, that's a wee collaborative thing in Scotland. Is Scotland's natural larder, it, and they go and, and it is the same Venice direction. It, it is. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, as I sit here and say Scotland's natural larder, I wonder how many people listening to that podcast know that's a thing. You know, and we have the ability within our sphere within our little world to have people of great influence and knowledge and experience you know we as a sport we seem to attract people that have intelligence and success and it might be the same in other sports but I only do this I don't have another you know all I'm good at is shooting stuff and helping people shoot stuff and and you know trotting about in the countryside so I don't know what the golf industry is like but we seem to be able to attract people of of great intelligence and position and all these different things and and we should be using those people we should be we should be doing things bigger and doing things better and i i just don't think that i just don't think we've got any organization capable of doing it at the moment but i think we could have if they'd all wake up a bit
1: I don't. Our view is not long enough. And This goes back yeah. to what Daryl was saying yeah. about the sort of short-term view, like, like, almost like a politician does, unless you sit in the House of Lords and then you've got a seat for life. We don't have an equivalent.
3: Yeah. Because it's elections. And, it's,
1: yeah. and it's, it's very hard. It is not an easy task to have a very, very long-term view No. about what you should be doing. No. And we were saying this before we started recording. I would like to see some investment from organisations who have a lot of money in young generations, but not just about helping them get in, like helping open the door to more people to get in keeping keep but there, there stalking.
0: To, to be fair, like the Blask and that, I think they are fairly good at getting the young... No, the young shots But that's not what I was going to say. Yeah.
1: What I was going to say was, we need people who are interested in these things, in countryside, but then can go on to make a sizable difference. So go on and gain that further education in zoology, in ecology, in biology. And then eventually they will be in places of power where they can make decisions um, based on fact and science, but with hopefully without a bias against field sports, if we are to use a, a phrase, because they've at least been able to sample it. And I would hope that their then science background... Would allow them to to make good judgments going how forward, much rather much? than a society which goes into those uh, types of sciences but have this arm's length view. How, how much is
0: uh, a university? and I'm not talking Scotland. Is about in well, it's about twenty thousand pounds in England. Well, it's about nine grand a semester. So, so you're so talking eighteen
1: thousand pounds a year.
0: Yeah. So how much a year? Eighteen grand. So let's call it twenty grand a year. Yeah. You know, but three t- years in England. So yeah, no, 60, but what I'm pounds. saying for sixty thousand pounds potentially you know that's not really if you're let's say an organization is sponsoring you know you've done all the tests sponsoring someone and and the criteria is you you want to go into zoology or ecology or something like that and they've sponsored you through that system that would be a hell of an investment that you've yeah, made in a person
3: absolutely and i'd be really interested to see how many people studying biology zoology and ecology uh, botany whatever they are how many of those people any one of those yeah how many of those people are shooting people? How many of those people have an understanding of practical wildlife management in this country? Because I think it's slim. And I think
1: And we should be, encourage, we should we be should encouraging be. we should be encouraging We should
3: be pushing our young shots to go to university and be biologists. And be that's ecologists. the link that's missing, I think. And we, we do this there's this great um, and it is Basque that have done this, and there's great you know, there's people like Duncan Thomas in the north of England who've done fantastic work to get young people in that sub-university age shooting and fishing and understanding these things. But what they haven't done and what very few people have done is push those people to go down a connected route. Yeah. Where they I might think, be able to make a difference. I, th- I, I, th- th- I think people think of their job op- job opportunities within our, our industry are be a gamekeeper, be a uh, sporting agent, be a gun making person, maybe work in a gun shop. I don't think, in the most part, there is a connection between. Well, if you're really into shooting, if you're really into wildfowling, why don't you do a degree in um, wetland management or something? In wetland management, yeah. and then become and then an expert. Why in that. can't you be a wetland management advisor for? This government or but for this part of the private sector. But that's where the difference is made. But that's the difference. And we're seeing it now. The The influence of ecology and ecologists in deer management is huge now. I think the influence full stop across uh, in... In Scotland, in, definitely. In yeah. England, it's less so. But um, there's a large estate now in England uh, that has its own ecologist, that employs an ecologist full-time. Duke Westminster's estate at Abbeystead employs an ecologist full-time alongside its gamekeepers to monitor habitat, to influence management.
1: And we shouldn't be afraid of that.
3: No, that's a great thing. We are finally achieving scientific-led wildlife management, which we have been trying to do since Colonel... Oh, what was his name? The Colonel that um, was the first guy The first guy that worked out that Red Deer didn't live into the hundreds of no, years. I'm not sure. Re- took the sporting lease on Jura, or Isla. He's a great book. Um, uh, colonel, somebody or other. Um, and... And, you know, he was there saying, we need to lead our deer management on science. We need full-time people employed in this. We need to count deer. We need to do these things. It's, it, and we're getting there It's,
0: it's hard to, um, when, you you know, particularly, like, let's say, a shooting estate mm-hmm. has an ecologist full-time and they've been practicing scientific uh, approaches yeah. to management, it is hard then for someone to come in and go, you're doing this wrong.
3: Exactly. Because got, then they go, well, actually, really, this is the... really good mate of mine is a grouse keeper with, In fact, I've got two really good mates of mine now that are keepers. One of them has got an ecology degree, one of them has got a biology degree. Someone come onto their moor and say, i may." somebody. And I've, I remember sitting at a party and this exact conversation happening with someone that was very strongly anti-sporting estate, anti-sporting management. And quietly sat in that room. There was a few of us with an opinion. And a basis of fact and he he and i were having a discussion that was turning into an argument and he turned around and said well you can't and this is this this is not the average person but this guy was particularly painful and an arsehole uh and he turned around and said well you can't understand it because you've no, you've had no formal education in ecology and i said well i've got uh, you know i'm studying an msc in sustainable deer management and my friend across the room, his groundskeeper, said, "I've got a degree in biology." And the lad who was a stalker gilly said, "Well, I've got a degree in ecology," and that shut him up. The fact we between us had—I don't know what age we were, but probably forty years of combined experience working in these places—mattered fuck all to him. But as soon as you could turn around and say, well, "We've got the bit of paper. We know what we're talking about," you shut up. And he went, "Oh, all oh, right."
1: But we've we've come. A, it's it's something which I think we've come away from because if you were to turn the clock back far enough talking about wildfowling, some of the, the pioneers of wildfowling were actually some of the greatest naturalists. Like, uh, I mentioned Sir Peter Scott, the, who ended yeah. up being one D- of the w- founding W-T? fathers, uh, no, uh, yes, but also the WWF.
3: Yeah. The, another founding father of the WWF was um, Lord McPherson of Dramocta was a great stalking hunting man hunted big game in africa all over the place he you know the world wildlife fund was he was on that board throughout history and you can chase it through wild in this country deer management in this country um uh, african game and the you know the, those hunters establishing parks uh, which you know a lot more about than i do and Amer- aldo leopold and all those people in america hunters have always been conservationists we know this people are so keen to trot out the line that hunting is conservation well it, it is but we need hunting people to appreciate conservation on a on a deep level and we need those people it's to more than understand killing it self. and we need people to not just be able to say well hunting is conservation but we need them to say well this is what that actually means and i don't think the average firearms and shotgun certificate holder in this country has that knowledge at the moment and i think it is the risk it is it is the responsibility of everybody, but especially the shooting organizations, to educate them, however they want to do it, because they're a lot cleverer than I am, apparently, and they know a lot more about it than I am, definitely. We need to work out how to empower the average recreational shooting, stalking, fishing person with knowledge, and then we can, we can, we can start to actually have influence, I think. But anyway, that's me on, on a wild tangent from the British Game Association. Sorry, I followed as well.
0: Just uh, watch your microphone on your zip.
3: Oh, it's really? Is the cable. this cable? This microphone? No, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. The what actual, was, the actual microphone is hitting off your zip. Is it? Yeah. because I'm ranting with yeah. such enthusiasm. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> uh, so yes, so my answer about the British Game Alliance is: I think it's a great thing. I think anybody, anything that gets um, more game being eaten is a great thing. Anything that gets people who shoot pheasants, partridges, grouse. To take home what they shoot is a great thing because we can all pretend it doesn't happen, but we all know it does happen. And there is this... The, the the majority of people, I think, now that are going driven shooting, that are buying days, are not taking game. And yes, there is lots of places giving them a prepared brace of pheasants. There is people now apparently giving out pre-made curries of yeah, pheasants. Yeah, I
1: heard that, actually.
3: But... I afraid I don't think that's good enough. I th- I think we the responsibility need people, lies on the people. Who I the I think it does, and I think we need those people to, without thinking, take home birds in the feather and know how to prepare them, and see that as being just as important part of as having the right tweeds or having the right gun or whatever it is, because it it should be. It always was.
0: Just I, just I, on a, another note, the British Game Alliance. We actually saw it last week. Was it doing something that we've been talking about for? bloody years they were in the middle of london which is the highest dense population in the uk uh, with game to try and game cards of you know what you're yeah. eating protein all these kind of things in the very busy center they had it live on instagram so the social media is going pretty well they're they're hitting the people yeah, where the bulk
3: of the people are and i think that's and that's what scott scotland's natural larder to be fair has been doing for a while you yeah. know that i know those lads have had Stands at farmers markets, cooking stuff up, yeah. giving it to people, and that's that's really good. I um, think the only but thing we, with it that, just needs to be it needs to be more.
1: It does need to be more, and the only thing that, that is it's massively positive. It's great because it gets game uh, as a food source in people's minds in the, in their vocabulary, and then they might understand a little bit more about how you go about getting that game there. And they get that sort of intrinsic value between food and the activity which is which is shooting, but I think it's important not to lose sight about what you were just touching on there is that we must remember that the real connection and the responsibility needs to lie with the people who are shooting, and that's one thing that i'm if I was to be critical about it, I don't know if they're focusing on enough because it's one thing saying Everybody's well, scared let's of fi- saying let's it, isn't fix it? our solution by making everybody else eat what we've killed. Well, that, that's great. And I want people to enjoy it. And I don't necessarily, I'm 100% not saying you need to go out and shoot if you want to eat game. Not at all. I very happily, we have plenty of people that I give game to who don't shoot, who are very happy for me to partake in it, are very happy to eat what I give them, and they're thankful for it, um, for, for me sourcing it for them. They don't want to partake in it themselves. That's absolutely fine. But do not think that is your get out of jail free card. Absolutely not. And I think that's kind of where we're pushing. Because it.
3: because I I think, I think there is a I always, I always try and take it back to your actions. if you if you sat down with a group of people you don't know, I think you should be able to defend your actions on a fundamental level about anything, whether you've killed a pheasant or a person, if you can sit down to, in front of people you don't know who don't understand it and explain why in your head that was acceptable. I think you're on quite a good I think you're on quite a good footing. Probably not for shooting people, but you never know. Um terrorists. Terrorist. Well that's, um, terrorist. that's yeah, war, yeah, war a, isn't it? I mean But it's it's all relative. It's you know all, <laughs> It's all relative. You know, we're back into we're back into shooting people in, invading homes in yeah. Texas. Um but what I do think is I think it's very hard to to sit down at a dinner table with people that don't understand these things and when they say what did you do on Saturday um, You say, well, I flew to Scotland for a weekend, and I, I shot. uh, So, what's the team? Team of six, team of six eight guns. Eight, yeah. Let's say eight guns, shooting a, upon me a three hundred bird day. What's three hundred divided by eight? Uh, well,
1: like
3: twenty five or something. Twenty five. Okay, um, it's not twenty five. but It's close. Let's to- let's say twenty five because yeah. I'm terrible at maths. Um. Let's say twenty-five. Let's say that Byron the Gun shot twenty-five, twenty-five pheasants on a Saturday.
0: That's my yearly shit. <laughs>
3: yes. Yeah. Let's uh, and if you I'm sit down lucky. with a people, group of people that you don't know, and you have to explain killing twenty-five birds for fun and taking none of them home. That is fucking hard work. I would struggle to say, yeah, I, sh- I shot twenty-five delicious. Tasty birds that you should definitely start eating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 I didn't take any because I, I had to fly home. And
1: actually, I don't eat any during the year. Do you
3: know Do you know where I've really where I've in my in my because I I grew up with with pheasant shooting and all these things and, and you don't question things that you grow up with, really. No, you don't. Um, when it really hit home to me about about driven shooting and the 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 fine line that it is on is when I went self employed and I started dealing more with American guests, and. I, sadly started trying to sell them things. It was a shocking part of my business, but it, it was quite useful and still is occasionally. And you know, these people would come stalking, they would love our stalking culture. They would love our tweeds, our horses, our Land Rovers, our castles. Our landscape. They would love our landscape. They would love all facets of our of our deer stalking. And then you tell them about shooting grouse with pointers. And they'd get really, really excited. And then you'd say, Well well actually if you come in, you know, if you come in if you come in the right time we could we could do some stalking in, and you could shoot you could shoot some driven days, and and that's really exciting because you know you're shooting. Well, sometimes you can shoot you can shoot five hundred birds in a day, and I have had more than I've had any of the action. I've had American guys go, what? Well, yeah, there's a team of there's a team of six, eight of you, and you you with all your mates, and uh, you know you, you shoot a couple of drives, so you stand on a peg, and and people push all the birds over the top of you, and they're really high up, they're really hard to shoot, and you shoot you shoot you know, you shoot for a couple of drives and then you stop and have elevenses and have a nice bit of pork pie and stuff out the back of your Range Rover and then you have to do a couple more and then you have a big lunch and then you can do a couple more and they say, right, what? what why, do you, why do you shoot 500 birds? And you sit there. You can't. I've never really managed to come up with a justification for that personally. And that's all that really matters because personally other people must be able to. But for me, I could never because these are people, these these guys, you know. Generally, the American stalking guests that I was getting, were used to quail hunting. They were used to hunting pheasants, where pheasants are wild. They are generally, if they're into if they're into bird hunting in inverted commas as American people call it, they're used to using gun dogs. They're generally quite keen about the gun. Yeah, dogs. So they
1: want to work the dogs with. They the shooting they advantage. are
3: used to a very walked up based shooting system, where you might be able to shoot two sage grouse a day. So why would you want to shoot 25? Is that 5 times a better day than shooting 5? And and what and, and if you then turn around and say well, you don't you don't take any of those 25 birds. I've n- personally I've never seen a gun in my experience I've never seen a gun take home 25 birds.
1: Well that that's always been my I mean this is this is such a deep conversation, and it, it's it not really a, it's not a black and wh- it's not it's not black and white. And you need to try and understand well what are the consequences. Say that wasn't there. Say that pheasant wasn't there. Absolutely. What happens in that vacuum, and what yeah. impacts? Obviously, there's people, uh, uh, employment. And there's an economy, there's employment. But more, as importantly as that, but it has to include people and, and economics. Is what happens to the landscape? What does it then get used for? Exactly. So it is. It is a very complex. Uh, but even conversation. even say
3: that. Even say that, and, and I think this is my, you know, do you, do you need, and and this is the hard thing, I don't think you can say, right, well, a 200-bird a day is acceptable, but a 250-bird day isn't. It becomes very complicated, and it becomes a very hard thing to, to, to quantify and to work out, because I know shoots where they shoot 300 birds a day, every... Every two weeks, they'll shoot through to bird day. Every week, they'll shoot through to bird day. And they will have a well-managed ecosystem. They'll employ a few keepers, good keepers. Um, They manage that area responsibly. It doesn't have a negative impact. And they process those birds themselves. And if they're not taken by guns or by keepers or by beaters or by pickers up, they are utilised to their full extent, which is all we can ask for. Uh. And I know places that shoot a hundred bird day twice a week, and don't do any of those things nearly as well. Yeah.
2: And that's it, why the numbers thing. Is and a very
3: and, difficult and thing it's to why quantify. it's why it's why you sort of naturally work to a numbers question. But I don't really think it's fair because it we is. We want just, outcomes. Yeah, exactly. I, and I think that's you, you've got to look at the whole system because my primary concern with it, other than, you know employment and keeping rural areas populated with people and all this kind of stuff is the the habitat and the ecosystem because we cannot afford, it is not sustainable to be damaging a habitat. It is questionable whether maintaining it is enough. We should be constantly trying to improve the ecosystems we work in, I think. And driven bird shooting has can do that and can be a great way of delivering that. It can be this fantastic way of improving habitats and managing and and paying for the management of the ecosystem exactly but it needs to be done right and i think tying that back to the bga i think this is where this idea of accreditation and a, a a marking scheme has great legs because it gives us that opportunity to help people improve what they're doing and if you can turn around to someone and say right we've accredited your shoot and um, you're and give a, you goals as well. Yeah, you're a you're a bronze medal BGA accredited shooter. And this isn't how they work, but this is something that I would potentially like to see personally. that You're a bronze medal British Game Alliance shoot. Um, you could be a gold level Game Alliance shoot, and this is what we think you need to work on. I think that's a fantastic thing, and that has the potential to increase the employment in places. That has the potential to increase the the direct positive result of shooting and hunting in those areas. But we need to be honest and focused about doing that. And we need to stop being reactive. And, and start be prepared being to have proactive. open conversations. Absolutely. And be prepared to have an open conversation and be prepared to be honest and be proactive about it. I mean, you were saying earlier, Darl, I didn't see them, but the papers today have picked up headlines about Yeah, I saw it on the, the... I
0: actually just saw it uh, here as well. I'm just going to double check if this one was from today as well.
3: And it proves, it, you know, headlines about people dumping birds. A, proves that at least somebody's doing it. And B proves that there's no point in us, if we do know about these things, not saying anything about it. Yeah, no, it's. Because they're going to find
0: out anyway. This is in the Times today, January 17th, 2019. Head title, the title is Abomination of Pheasants Dumped into Pit by Digger. A video, video, a video showing dozens of dead pheasants being dumped in a pit by Digger has revealed the dark side of Britain's multi million pound bird shooting industry. Uh, the
1: only thing I would say, because I haven't so read this article yet, is have I've you I've. have to be careful with stuff like that because sometimes it could be a case of taking processing all of the meat. Exactly. Out of a, Are they, they breasted out pheasants? Breast and so leg. This is, It looks like a full pheasant. This,
0: this says here the clip, which was shot in November at Kotsbach Back Kossback Game, game farm, farm
1: in Leicestershire. I, I don't know. But is it a
0: game farm?
1: Hmm.
0: Right, industry promises that shoot birds go into the food ga- chain. Yeah. Interesting. Either it's way, if, you play that, the video? if if that is
3: proven to be true, yeah, the
1: from problem my is from that view, picture you can't tell whether they're breasted and legged out because it's just a pile of feathers.
0: Yeah. I'll, I'll, I assume they've walked up to uh, it maybe okay, afterwards. Maybe we'll be able to yeah. Yeah, it. yeah. I'll I'll watch while okay. you you guys well, discuss. Well, he
1: can watch and give us feedback. One of the things I was saying uh, to to come back on one of the things that you were saying is that I have had quite, quite a number of com- conversations with people who are starting to think about this more, and one of the questions they said, well how do I decide? You know, I'm, I'm starting to think about it more and I'm trying to decide whether what I've done in the past is right and what should I do going forward because I do enjoy the social aspect of a driven day and is it a bad thing? I was, well, it's not a bad thing, all the things that we've been talking about. But how, how do you, uh, as an individual person, process that yourself? So the only thing that I have in my armory right now, because I do get invited on driven days, we're going to go and uh, probably do a keeper's day at the end of the year, uh, maybe one or two, is that if at the end of the day, I am asked by the gamekeeper to take home everything that I've killed. Would I be surprised or concerned about having to do that? No, I, because I would never put myself in a situation where I've got so much. I'm like shit. I'm not going to be able to eat. All See, I, I not to
3: say that you would have to. No, I deal with that in a really interesting way by being an absolutely fucking abhorrent <laughs> <a> <laughs> shot. So you know how the if problem. I if I've shot three if I. And I haven't, I was saying to Daryl earlier actually, I reckon it's four years since I've been shooting on a driven day. Um, I reckon if I went home with three pheasants that I shot, I'd be doing pretty well. But, but I, I, I don't beating, know whether that's a good way to think was, about was it, was but that's be- the best I was beating, that I've most I was beating last week and I took six brace of duck and 12 brace of partridges. Duck. Oh, that's oh, something I that. that I wouldn't refuse.
0: I, 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 I can't take that duck.
3: I absolutely love duck. So I took all that home. I put it in a carcass tray. I took it home, hung them. Overnight, I don't like to hang things for a very long time, hung them overnight and spent probably, all told, two hours the next day breasting and legging stuff. And it's not full bird plucking. If I had gone and shot my two sage grouse or my two black grouse, like back in the day you did here, then maybe I would have plucked and and
1: i did my full bird roast for my two teal that i shot a couple of
2: weeks yeah that but it was awesome. but it's but teal are very easy you can't easy. breast out a teal no, unless no, you're no. making kebabs But it's, <laughs> it's very, very easy it,
3: it is and yeah. and that was the thing and i went home and i thought right okay and i've done it i've i've been doing it this year and i think i've been doing it although to be fair i haven't gone beating for easily four years i didn't beat at all last last year or the year before or the year before that but i you know i I have done that and I have taken those birds and, you know, whoop-de-doo, well done me. I'm essentially like a shooting mother to razor now. But um, no, my, my, my point is that it's not hard. It doesn't take a lot of time. And there is, if you don't, if you, you know, if you are one of those people we were talking about earlier, that's taken up shooting later in life, that maybe has never had that, that knowledge passed on to them of how to deal with game. Which is an actual thing. I loaded for a guy a few seasons ago who'd never prepared a game bird who was a shooter. And he'd only been shooting two or three years. But he'd never prepared a bird because he'd been on shoots where they gave you a prepared brace. Or he just said, no, thank you. And I spent 20 minutes with him at the end of the day. He got his brace. And I we sat on the tailgate of the Hilux. And I showed him how to pluck one, how to do it, and how to get it ready properly. And I sent him home with the other one. And he was, I think... And again, this isn't me blowing my own horn, because there's people who've done far more and, and done that sort of thing far more often than I have. But he was, I think, so grateful to be able to do it. But he'd never had a way of learning before. Because again, in our education, like with the gun safety thing, to clay shooting to game shooting, where do you learn now? If, you, you know, if you're one of those people, like a lot of people are, that, that buy shooting with a team of friends, and some people don't even have a full team of friends that shoot or buy days, yeah, so they go, on, you know, yeah, yeah. they go on odd days. If you've not got a really good mate, you can say, uh, how do I do this? What do you do? Because you don't want to take them and throw them in the bin, because that's really bad. And, you, uh, and a lot of people are afraid, I think that's a big thing, a lot of people are afraid of cocking up game processing be it dear and to be fair i've seen some people grow and it's pretty abhorrent so you know fair enough but um people we we have a responsibility to educate people whether that is the person in your syndicate who doesn't take anything home and you say do you want a hand with that or whatever it is i think everybody's got a responsibility and then we go back to that higher level that organization or whatever it is we need to be teaching people how to process these things which we do really well on our young shot dates. They do all that if you're a kid. But if you're a forty five year old, there's not a middle aged shot day. No.
0: Maybe it's something we need to do. Yeah. Maybe
3: maybe it is, yeah. Uh, s-
0: just going back to this article quickly, I thought I'd just so I watched the video. Uh, there are definitely birds that have just been dumped because there's claims. Oh, they haven't been processed in any way. Yeah. Uh there's a statement from Liam Bell, chairman um, of the National Gamekeepers Liam's Organisation. Good, Liam's a really good bloke. Uh said last him. night that the video showed an abomination and called for the perpetrators to face justice.
1: It's the it, there is no other
3: response than that. There isn't. There isn't and it's I I know Liam a little bit, I have a lot of time for Liam. He is a an exceptionally good pheasant keeper. Uh he's a yeah did you Shropshire? say yeah, 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 he's, yeah. The, he's the chairman of the NGO now um he's, he's an exceptionally good keeper he's a very nice bloke and he has he he like i think most of us that work in it and and especially people of of Liam's age is a bit older than me uh a good bit older than me but th- th- these are people that you rarely meet without an opinion on these things i don't know many head keepers who don't think this is a problem you speak to people and keepers that are putting out you know even bigger shoot days and this kind of stuff they want an a solution to this that is long term They want their guns to be taking pheasants home and the problem is, is is it's the same problem we're all faced with it is time and resource and everything else. My angle is that if we're in a shooting organization we are essentially paying their time to do this that is their job yeah um you can't expect a a headkeeper on a pheasant shoot to take the time to teach every individual gun he gets shooting to process stuff what you can do is put them into the direction of a youtube video put them in the direction of a course they can go on whatever it is but we need to as a group take on the responsibility of having the facilities and the resources in place to make sure that every single person that picks up a gun and goes shooting whether it is deer or pheasants or whatever else has that Ability and that ease of knowledge, so that they don't have an excuse to do that. That you know, they don't have an excuse to facilitate dumping pheasants or, or whatever it is. And I think that is a really big task. I think that's a hell of a big task, but we need to tackle it. If, we, if we're going to have a future, if driven bird shooting is going to have a future, we need to tackle it because I can tell you what, the general public will tolerate a lot of things, in my opinion. I don't think they'll tolerate that because no, that anything. is, I can't, you can't,
2: nobody's can unjustifiable.
3: That. It really is. Um, and we if we don't find a way around that and that continues to happen, then we're properly, properly buggered.
1: And on that note, because also the husky's howling. That's so what I'm going to have to see. He's probably saying you guys are podcasting for long enough. Everybody's very dumb. Uh, I think we'll uh, we'll probably call it a day and let you yeah. be on your way. But Sam, it's been an awesome conversation again. Thank you. Thank so you much very for much me on. for yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming by the office, and I'm sure we will have you on again in the future. Uh oh, well, depending on the when everybody's of when everybody's
3: suitably bored of this, <laughs> and you've had some nice, interesting people to fill the time. I, I'd love to come back. But thank you very much. Thank you for your hard work and your uh, sterling effort. Thank you very much, Sam. And, we'll and speak uh, you soon. yeah, speak to you soon. Right. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the show. For all the people that that got all the way through to the end, which I'm sure is nearly every single person. Round of applause. You are at the end now. Uh, uh, But, yeah, I I think people will have really enjoyed this this podcast. We do want to hear from you, because I know
1: that there were probably quite a lot of topics that that tickled you one way or the other. Yeah. Uh, So if you have your comments, send us in an email or... Tag us in something on social media, and we'll read it out if you if you're keen. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you for all the people that have been leaving reviews.
0: I literally got an email today from a bunch of people that just uh, left us reviews, very very kind reviews, and we appreciate every single one of them. We really do. It helps us um, get higher in the rankings, put it in front of more people, and uh, it also means that if, you know if people come across the show, they can get honest reviews from people. I mean, the bottom line is that. If I'm starting a new show, I flick through to the reviews to see what people
1: are saying about it. Yeah, it makes a big, big difference. Don't forget to enter the competition for this week's podcast, which is to win a pair of Smith Optics shooting safety glasses. We will stick up a post on social media for uh, to to jog people's memory, but it is a picture competition. We just want to see your best picture from this winter period, you can either tag us on social media or feel free to shoot us an email with the picture as well. If you want to contact us, it is podcast at paceproductionsuk.com
0: and you can also fire us a message through Facebook, I'm trying to think. Or Instagram. Or Instagram, yeah, that, that that's cool as well. Uh, but all of the information is on our website, which is thepacebrothers.com uh, which loads of people have been going to in the last Month or so has been a bit crazy. Yeah, actually, a lot of
1: people are asking when we're putting out dates for the next the hunt. hunt. Yeah, so been... hopefully we will get that tied up when we get back from the states.
0: If you are a new listener, uh, there is many different ways to listen. You've got Spotify, uh, Stitcher, Acast, iTunes, uh, and actually when we've been looking through the stats, more and more of you are switching to Spotify. I think that is mm. that is now our second it's most been popular. Amazing, People have been doing the switch. Spotify is free to um, to use. It's, uh, I think you don't.
1: No, I now I, I use free for years, but now I've I've because of my phone contract, I've gone over to premium, and it, it is really good. But you don't need it for podcasts because podcasts you can download for free anyway. Yeah, but exactly. With premium, you can actually download albums for nothing. Well, for your subscription.
0: But like Baron said, the with a spotify free it has no effect on listening to podcasts no no it's the only effect it has is if you're listening to music you get a few adverts that, that's the difference
1: adverts and you can't skip you can only get so many skips an hour
0: and also i think you can only listen to the same track so many times
1: i think they got rid of that but i you they? Certainly yeah. only get skips anyway no. the anyway. podcasts are and always will be free
0: and if you're a vodafone customer and you're on the entertainment package you get it for free we just plug Vodafone should we ask them for some sponsors <laughs> we, we probably should I I'll tell you what though Vodafone I've been with them for 10, 10 at least 10 years yeah, now. me too and uh, one their signal's really good but secondly their roaming for around the world is phenomenal for their prices absolutely phenomenal
1: yeah well we're both on their international roaming package out here in the states using our phone just like we would be at home
0: 26 pounds a month I'm 20 26 pounds I get 150 gigs of data I get to use my all of that my minutes and everything around the world plus Spotify Premium which is £10 a month that's pretty good and throughout the whole of Europe and then I get 500 minutes of international calling, I could be a salesman for (laughs) (laughs) anyway, we'll leave you to it, enjoy the show and uh, look out for the mini shows over the next two weeks as well